Hello, this is PMC, July 10th, 1997, that's 25 years ago, was the original Japanese release date for the first Armored Core by From Software. This week on our main feed, we are releasing in its entirety our simulator episode on Armored Core, so that's two plus hours of our thoughts on the game, some production history, and the full Giant Robot FM treatment. So please go ahead and enjoy. If you would like more like this, please check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash giantrobotfm, for how to get the follow-up episode covering Project Phantasma and Master Verena, which is available over on our Patreon. Thanks. This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. We have a very special episode today. This is our debut simulator episode. I am in the studio with PMC. It's just the two of us chatting today, a very intimate atmosphere. PMC, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm just, you know, I'm ready to exchange emails with my favorite raven, <laughs> Stephen Hero. <laughs> This is this is really exciting for a lot of reasons. Number one, this is like I said earlier, the first like gift I guess for our ten dollar patrons. This is kind of what the Patreon was built on. Because going into this project, we know people wanted more history episodes, and we locked those behind a higher paywall because, quite frankly, the the hours that it takes to produce a single history episode are extensive. So we definitely wanted to make sure that, you know, we don't overexert or overtax ourselves. Yeah, I, I think it's good to think of it. We're already doing the history for the mainline feed for the you know our, our primary coverage. And so to add a secondary track, uh, you know, we want we are happy to to meet that demand. But, you know, it does help make ends meet when we're able to get that direct support to to do stuff like what we're about to do. Now, we also might have in the future guest on our history episodes, but today I am joined, like I said, by PMC, who is an Armored Core speedrunner. He is my specialist in the field. Talk a bit about your history with Armored Core. Of course, we are covering the first, only the first Armored Core game. Originally, when I envisioned this episode, we are going to cover the first three PlayStation games, but um, a little scope creep there. This episode, just focusing on... The first game became a little too extensive, so we're going to split it up, and we're going to dedicate a follow-up episode to both Project Phantasma and Master of Arena a bit later. Yeah, so my Armored Core history, I think my Armored Core history follows pretty much hot off the heels of my general mecha fandom, which mm -hmm. is to say I was primed for it by, by having hand-me-down Transformers for my older brother. And then, of course, what really ignited it was Gundam Wing airing on Toonami. So you were on the ground floor for Armored Core? Uh, not really, because Armored Core, I think, first releases in North America, I want to say in, I think it was late 97, so July 97 is when it releases in Japan. So we're coming up on 25 years of yeah, Armored Core. Yeah, but it's Core. still a contemporary system, though. Like you, you were playing like in yeah. the early 2000s. Yes. And, and I will say I was certainly on the ground floor by the time Master of Arena comes out because yeah. Master of Arena is, I think, summer of 2000. Did you play those first three when you were a wee tot? Yes. Oh, wow. I got, I, so once I got caught up, 
by picking up Armored Core 1 and Project Phantasma. I then got every Armored Core as it came out through uh, through Silent Line, I think. Or maybe I stopped with Silent Line. Silent Line is, is the one after 3. So I, I would have gotten 2, Another Age, 3, and then I think Silent Line was where I, where I drew the line. <laughs> the timelines for this series are wild. Even Japanese fans don't understand it. I, I think one of the things I see frequently with Japanese fans uh, when I interact with the Japanese speedrunners, who are all super great people, they always let, they always say, why is it that Silent Line has Silent Line first and then Armored Core is the subtitle? <laughs> what happens? Makes sense. I mean, it makes <laughs> sense to question that. It does not make sense to name your game as such. And there's some supplemental material that tries to tie everything together, but just given how fragmentary the lore is for the first Armored Core, I imagine that is not easy to do. No, there is. We'll get into this. If, if, you know, folks, if, if we continue doing this and we get into Armored Core 2, well, actually, maybe it'll come up in Master Arena. There are lore things that people latch on to, mm-hmm. but also even from, I believe, has made it clear at times, Armored Core 3 is considered to be a full reboot of the premise of Armored Core 1. Yeah, I've read that. I'm looking for... Do you think it pulls it off? Have you played 3? I think 3, for, of the ones that I've played, is the like the best, the best uh, mood-setting experience. Ooh. I think the music is outstanding. I think it looks great. It, it plays great. It also has more of that just absolute shit-eating email content oh, that we man. all crave. Yeah, uh, it's really, really good. For, I, I have fond memories of revisiting that game in college, and one of my friends being like, "Oh, so you're just a completely amoral mercenary," and like he wasn't playing, mm-hmm. he didn't know Armored Core before, but he immediately picked it up just from seeing the presentation of the game. Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to those games eventually. There's just so much Armored Core content to work your way through if you go through chronologically. Oh, certainly, yeah. And even there's more Mecha from Soft History in between mm-hmm. with some really off-the-wall releases, <laughs> which we'll talk about somewhat in this episode. All right, but there's only one place to start a history of the Armored Core series, and that's with From Software, the now-fabled video game maker. Now, of course, today, From is one of the most reputable and revered developers, Japanese or otherwise, currently making AAA games. When a new FromSoft game releases, it becomes the conversation for probably two to three months. Like, we are in the midst of that conversation with Elden Ring. Mm-hmm. But it complete, it usually a release from FromSoft usually takes the critics by storm. It, it, just, it consumes the discourse, for better or worse. Since the release of Dark Souls in 2009, which changed the gaming landscape and created, well, popularized a genre unto itself, the studio has been on a meteoric rise. No one commands the attention of the enthusiast crowd like they do, but surprisingly, their origins are quite humble. So before we continue, I gotta ask, PMC, what is your history with From Software? We're both not Souls boys, but we do have some experience with the company. You know, I, I was thinking about this question, and I truly do believe it really was limited to just the, the Armored Core experience I mm-hmm. mentioned before, because I was trying to think about whether or not I would have run into your Kingsfield, your Echo Knight, anything like that, and I think the answer is is truly no. I, I, really, I, I was aware that FromSoft had other PlayStation 2 launch games mm-hmm. besides Armored Core 2. But I never really followed through on them. And the other thing I'll say, too, 
this is kind of a, a maybe a, a comment about the perception of video game companies when you're a kid. I don't think it's always necessarily obvious what those commercial relationships are. Sometimes they're not even obvious when you're an adult. Yeah. But I think seeing, you know, seeing the from software name, it was, you know, was it from software? I was interested in also if you're, a, if you're a, a, you know, a young person who loves janky PS2 games, maybe what really excites you more is the Agitech label, right? The HTEC yeah. label, which was on <laughs> all sorts of wacky things, uh, you know, in that era and you don't understand that you know they're a they're a publisher doing localization work more so than necessarily a developer, uh, and as, you know certainly and, and that was true in the era of of magazines and you know a few internet boards. It's different, a little little different now. Did Agitech publish Way of the Samurai? I believe so. It's it, like in my bones, I feel that connection. That sounds like a that sounds like a game they would publish. But yeah, when you said Janky, immediately came to that. Also, immediately my mind went to Tenchu, and of course they worked on. Sw- a few of the tension uh, games. No, no, it was it was Bam Entertainment. God damn it! Sorry, I'm sure there's some cross pollination there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, my history is pretty limited. I'm looking through their gameography now. I most recently played Duracidae. I bounced off the Souls games on numerous times. The vibes are immaculate. I just cannot stomach the mechanics, and that's not really a criticism. I'm just not a 3D action person. Um, I tend to I have trouble conceptualizing and reacting to the combat on screen. So I just prefer prefer to avoid those games. If a Souls game ever had an easy mode or like a photo mode, I'd probably be all in from. Not that you need my money. I mean, I think Elden Ring has sold 12 million copies. That was the news like a week after launch, I think. You that know? is wild. Yeah. After doing this history, the, the, focusing on the humble origins of this company, the fact that Elden Ring sold 12 million copies is astounding. Um, shout outs to all the creatives at From Software. Also, there's definitely some fair share of criticism that the company needs because I hear that labor practices aren't the best at From Software. Allegedly not the worst either, but it's always good to scrutinize that as much as possible. But yeah, I played Duracidae. I guess when I was younger, I played Lost Kingdom 1. Oh, right. The GameCube card RPGs, right? I think. I only played the first one. There's two. Right. Really, I should have been playing... Speaking of GameCube card games, I really want to get my hands on Botan Kaitos. <laughs> I was looking at prices um, earlier today, and the first game is reasonably priced. The second game, Origin, which is re- the real like creme de la creme, mm. is ridiculously high. Yeah, yeah. I think more recently, I have touched. Um, I touched Chrome Hounds recently, which is to say, only the single player and not the actual online multiplayer experience is the single player worth it eventually hopefully we'll podcast about it but i, I feel like you needed to be on the ground floor with the, the single multiplayer. player you can be remarked upon i think you can get a glimpse and the other thing too is that copies of chrome hounds are never they're never going to cost anything because because most of the game doesn't exist so that that's not a big deal and the other things i did play the um i did play the devolver digital international publication of uh metal wolf chaos that's on my radar as well hopefully both you know hopefully again we'll be podcasting about it ideally if we're podcasting for years and years we'll move our way slowly through the from software mecca library devolver digital if you want to come come on our podcast and you're already in our (laughs) patreon then by all means yeah feel free now interestingly from software didn't start off making games The company was established in 1986 as a software developer specializing in, quote, home application software, which really amounts to accounting programs. 
allegedly, and this is pretty funny in hindsight, they also made productivity software, which allowed bosses to track just how much um, their employees were working. Uh, given their reputation for making games with punishing difficulty curves, I thought this was amusing and a little related. I think it's really funny, too, in the sense that in a lot of your games, a lot of their games, yeah, obviously you mentioned the punishing difficulty, but there's also just like the sense of being, especially in Armored Core, being electronically monitored. Yeah. You know, that like you finish a mission and you're like, hey, I've been noticing. I well, mean, really. Or you immediately get an email responding right. to how you performed in a mission. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's an interesting connection. I was actually looking up online, like, there must be some diehard and devoted FromSoft collectors, and I was wondering if there's a market for any of their software, but this is the 80s and 90s. There must be box <laughs> copies of From Software Man. accounting programs, because that would be released on a CD I mean, well, or a floppy. I, now, now, that, now that makes me want to search the, um, go to Yahoo Auctions Japan and see if... Uh, I did a cursory search. Did you, came you know up. any names for the software? Or? No, I couldn't no, find anything, okay. which is wild because you would think there is an exhaustive like mm -hmm. two-hour long deep dive into the production of the early history of From Software, but there's not really... Yeah, yeah. To be honest, what we're about to record might be the most in-depth <laughs> uh, material related to yeah. the origins of the company. P people out here defending Dark Souls too, but fewer people doing the history research, I guess. And that would get the clicks. I mean, if you pitch <laughs> that to one of the major outlets, I imagine they'd pick it up because it's interesting. And mm -hmm. there's definitely an interested audience for it. Now, also keep in mind that it's 1986. It's the beginning of the economic bubble in Japan. You know, take a shot anytime during one of these history episodes when I mentioned the economic bubble, but it's really omnipresent when we're talking about the, the creative forces that birth so much of these mecha properties. But things were looking good economically in Japan. Investment was booming, and there was money to be made, especially in tech. So it makes sense that a young entrepreneur would leverage his assets to make a new company because even though it's a risk, um, it's a, it, there's the, there was the potential for it to bear, bear fruit. So fortuitously, a young man named Naotoshi Zin decided to take advantage of this burgeoning market. Zin founded From Software Inc. on November 1st, 1986 in Shibuya. At its start, the company only had four employees with a capital stock of 2,100 million yen, which was roughly $12 million and a half dollars in 1986 monetary uh, values. So, you know, much more today due to inflation. Even though that number sounds big, when you're starting a company, it's still rather humble beginnings. So From Software was not an like, assured success, and it started out as a company with only a handful of employees. So like I said, From Software started out as a software developer before making the plunge into video game development. And this sort of transition is not without precedent. Fun fact, Working Designs, a now defunct localization company, was founded the same year as From, 1986, as a software company focusing on logging management software for the IBM PC. Of course, the company eventually transitioned to publishing. There was a, uh, like a very enthusiastic employee named Victor Ireland who pushed the company in that direction. But sometimes stuff like that happens, and sometimes the reverse happens. There's a company I researched pretty extensively called Juroden, who are responsible for a bunch of classic arcade games in the 80s. And a few notable collaborations like the Gynax-assisted Zardion in the 90s. That company began as a video game developer only to transition to software when the market began to shrink in the 2000s. So that's a company that started out making arcade games, then making console games, and then going 
to software once the like the market started falling out from under their feet. Now they maintain a very popular public transportation website. You're a big public transportation mm-hmm. stand, PMC. Absolutely, and it's important. I had nothing else to add to that anecdote, but I always want to <laughs> shout out public transportation. I need to invoke you every time I do. No, I mean, that's fair. I, I could also understand you wanting to invoke popular things after invoking working designs <laughs> and potentially like attracting the, a certain a certain angry crowd towards us. <laughs> Some people just get upset when you bring up working designs. Very true. We should uh, definitely cover some working designs <laughs> mecha games in the future. I'm looking at you, Magic Knight Rayearth and Vanguard Bandits, mm. and, oh dear, G- Gun Griffin Blaze for the PS2. Oh yeah, that's right. They did that too. That was one of their PS2. Yeah, the shiny yeah. cover. Mm-hmm. So Zinn and his team stayed in their lane for the better part of a decade. So late 80s, early 90s, they're milling about in their company, still a very small company, making accounting programs, productivity software, no game development at this time. But by the mid-90s, the team was beginning to feel restless, which I get. Six years spent developing accounting software sounds monotonous. A year doing accounting in general, from my perspective wow. as a teacher, I'm, shout outs, shout outs to all the accountants out there. I'm sure you're doing hard labor, but from my perspective, that sounds a little monotonous. Just like I'm sure creating lesson plans for 40 years of my life, which I'm doomed to, I'm sure sounds monotonous to some people. Shinichiro Nishida, one of the general managers at From, remembers during this time, quote, when we were making home applications, there would sometimes be periods of free time between our customers' orders where we had no work to do, end quote. To pass the time, and no doubt to flex their creative muscles, they began coding games. Now, the advent of the CD format was what pushed From Software to take the plunge into game development. Now, this isn't too surprising. CDs were much cheaper than their cartridge counterparts, and the hardware specs on the PlayStation and similarly newer consoles were very attractive to like up-and-coming developers like these enthusiasts. And presumably looking to diversify their portfolio and eager for a new frontier, a group of employees within From pitched a game for Sony's then-unreleased PlayStation console. Inspired by Wizardry, a trio of aspiring game devs, Shinichiro Nishida, who I mentioned, Yasuyoshi Karasawa, and Toshifumi Nabashima wanted to reinvent the classic dungeon crawler using 3D environments and polygonal graphics. Enter, this is when the trumpets start blaring, Kingsfield. I have very little Kingsfield experience, despite the fact that I think it might be my shit if it were, I guess, remade in a 2022 context and it wasn't Elden Ring. But PMC, talk to me a bit about Kingsfield because you at least know of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I've spent a little bit of time with it. The I've, the most the most Kingsfield I've played was I spent about 15 hours uh, in the past year with Kingsfield. Uh, I'm going to call it Kingsfield 2, which is to say Kingsfield 1 in North America. The naming scheme, the first Kingsfield, so the Kingsfield that Steven just made reference to was never released in North America. Has it ever received an official release since then? In English? Yeah. No. I feel like I feel like a Kingsfield collection would sell gangbusters for minimal effort. I, I tend to agree with you. That would put my kid through college in like a minute worth of sales. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. The thing with Kingsfield, and I, I'm really glad that you bring up Wizardry. Wizardry is a really important example of something that I think is important to acknowledge, especially for, for a podcast like ours. We're two guys from Jersey talking primarily about media coming out of Japan. But, you know, 
the sort of inspiration that happens across borders is pretty much always flowing in both directions. Wizardry was a classic PC gaming series that became wildly popular in Japan to the point where the franchise actually got picked up and persisted in Japan long after it had stopped releasing in North America. And I think is now those, some of those games have then been released back yeah. into, into North America. The point here being that uh, they love this shit. They really do love the dungeon crawlers. We could both name a ton of dungeon crawler series or your SMTs, your Etrian Odysseys, your, your all these things. And so Kingsfield is really interesting because the premise of it is, I, I would say, is that it basically is a real-time 3D dungeon crawler using early 3D. It is, you know, extremely bare-bones 3D. This is not fancy textures. I There's, love those low-poly <laughs> textures, though. Bar- barely, you know, a handful. You can count the polygons if you really want to. <laughs> and that's really pretty much it. The vibe is, uh, as we're going to talk about with Armored Core, and, you know, really, it seems to be almost a quality of From's development, not much to you said about lore. There's an opening brick of text that tells you about the premise. You occasionally talk to NPCs. There are people that you run into in uh, Kingsfield too, um, but like that's really, really it. It never, it never gives you in uh, like a, a plot to follow. You know, there's certainly no waypoints, no order of operations. Uh, I when I was playing it, I followed a walkthrough for about 15 hours, killed the ant queen. Did some stuff like that. I'm surprised you got that far into it. How long ago was this? Oh, this was probably, I want to say early fall, maybe. Okay. Because uh, when I, I think PMC games, I don't think Kingsfield. Well, I had just gotten an X station and I wanted uh, to play. I, I was checking out a bunch of early PS1 games, uh, like especially ones that people don't talk about, like Disruptor, the first Insomniac yeah. games title. Is that a mech game? That is, nah, it's just a first person shooter. Yeah. It's like a Doom style. It's, it's fun, but. But I was, just, I mean, Space Griffin VF9, which yeah. is a mech game. Oh, what's the other one? Oh, oh, the Clique series, of course. I was checking out games like that. And so Kingsfield, of course, especially with the prominence of From Software, as we've covered, and my own interest in, in Armored Core, I want to check it out. And there are there are dedicated Kingsfield speedrunners who've made the game pretty short. Has that made it any, ed, into any big competitions or like speedrunning events? I don't think Kingsfield has shown up in a GDQ. Uh, I cannot. Unfortunately, uh, it's harder to check other events, but... Have any non-Souls from games showed up at GDQ? If there's an answer to... Uh, oh, well, okay. So Metal Wolf has. Okay. Metal that Wolf makes Chaos, sense. Yeah. NXT have. That's probably a crowd pleaser. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, the only other one... That Otogi can, might like look great. Otogi recently run. made it to GDQ for the first time. That makes sense. I'm trying because I, I thought maybe Cookies and Cream would have Cookie and Cream, but they not, they didn't make it. Certainly, no, I know no Armored Core has made it <laughs> yet. Yet, when's that list coming out? April thirtieth. All right, so we got we got two weeks at least before I find out <laughs> if they have taken my bait again or not again. Not to get off on a, a, a Togi tangent here, I really want to replay those games. I, I didn't was it, I I played one and a bit of two back in the day, but I need to buy an Xbox for that. Correct? I think so. Is that even backwards compatible? Not I that I have current I think, Xbox hardware. I think Otogi recently became backwards compat on the later Xboxes. You should check that. Yeah, but they stopped that, right? Like whatever they did last, that's it. They're yes. Not, yeah. They when the when the Series X came out, they had like one more burst of new titles, new 360 and OG Xbox titles for backwards compat, and I think Otogi was on that list, like specifically yeah. that last wave. Interesting. Um, but 
you know, again, none of the 360 armored cores, no mech assault. Um, Phil Spencer, what, what, <laughs> what the fuck? Get those, get those games out there. Yeah. You know how much the kids love From Software. They're all talking about. It. I walk all into talking. my classroom, fifteen out of my thirty kids talking about From Software. It's always weird though, because of course Elden Ring is hot shit with some of my students, and like when they say, "Hey, Mister Hero, what are you playing?" and I mention Armored Core, I'm like, "Hold on, let me, <laughs> kids, let me take you on a little history lesson here." You and it doesn't blow their minds though; they, they just shrug it off. That Mecca is not cool with young kids, at least not my students. Well, it's going to become cool when FromSoft yeah. announces a new Armored Core. All right, He's singing a new tune. Yeah. So many of my students will be listening to Giant Robot FM at that point. <laughs> so no question, Kingsfield was a labor of love. It was made by a team of just seven people. Since they didn't have the connections or clout to partner with a publisher, From released the game themselves. It came out just 13 days after the PlayStation launched in Japan in December 1994. Now, remember, this original release never was released anywhere else outside of Japan. Still, it was a modest success, selling about two times as much as the company projected. And this wasn't planned as a one-and-done endeavor. Oh, no. Even before it was released, From Software decided that Kingsfield was going to be a series, so they had confidence in it. And they went on to capitalize and improve on the formula with Kingsfield 2 and 3, which came out in 1995 and 1996, respectively. And of course, those two games were released in the U.S., and I believe they were released under the titles Kingsfield 1 and 2, correct? Yes, that's correct. They, they could have really fucked with people and called it Kingsfield 2 and 3, or now pulled a square, square soft with the Final Fantasy 3 and 6 naming conventions. Yeah, I mean, I think this is also a good example of why by the time PS2 rolls around, the Kingsfield, because Kingsfield PS2 is just called Kingsfield 4 in Japan, but it's called Kingsfield the Ancient City in North America because they're like, we've dug too deep. I like when companies are confident to keep the Roman numeral there, even if the previous games haven't been released in the States. I don't know, something about that. There's something very satisfying about just seeing a Roman numeral a next year game title. I don't know. I mean, not everyone can have the courage of Front Mission 3. <laughs> True. True. And that this is almost a contemporaneous, not contemporaneous release, but a, a release that came out during a similar time period. Um, this is a funny anecdote, and it just barely made the cut of these history notes because it appeared on my Twitter feed a week, a week ago. The polygonal models from From Software, uh, no, excuse me, the polygonal models that From Software made for Kingsfield got a lot of positive press, even in America, which, as you'll remember, um, this game was never released in. A 1994 issue of EGM, like I said, in retrospect, this is hilarious, featured an article called Sony PlayStation in the U.S. that broke down the system specs of the system. It included a screenshot from Kingsfield of two skeletons brandishing swords. Now, keep in mind, if you're trying to imagine what the screenshot looks like, there are two charming skeletons, but these are very basic-ass, low-poly skeletons. And the caption underneath reads, the PlayStation can produce mind-boggling effects. We might tweet this out. This made the rounds on Twitter a while ago. Well, this is was this the uh, the skeletons in video games Twitter account? Is that? I, yeah, maybe. Okay. So you might have seen this. I, dear I think listener. I saw this. I mean, I've I've seen this in the past too. This is, yeah. These these guys are classic. Yeah, they have a lot of personality despite being made of like two pixels. <laughs> Though to be honest, they don't look too far off from like their Skyrim counterparts. Mm-hmm. So it's 1995, and this this was a hinge point for From Software this year. Emboldened by the success of Kingsfield, the company began dedicating more resources and staff to game development. 
The employees assigned to video game projects ballooned from 7 to 30, and what began as one team soon expanded into four separate production lines. According to a spokesperson, quote, each production line can produce one title a year so we can release a game every three months or so, end quote. Now, of course, one of these production lines is very important to our history. While doing this research, I really want to find out when From Software stopped developing accounting programming. And I'm not sure when they stopped developing those, that software. I assume it's in the late 90s once like all these production lines came into existence, but I'm not quite sure. But I'm very curious what the last piece of accounting software they made, what year that was released in. But the mid-90s wasn't just a transform, transformative period in From Software's history, but Sony's too. On December 4th, 1994, the electronic juggernaut, best known for the Walkman, took a gamble and launched the PlayStation in a crowded market. Initially, sales were steady and would skyrocket by the end of the decade, but the system needed exclusives. So, Sony did as Sony does and opened their pocketbook to court third parties. No doubt impressed with, the, with Kingsfield and the ways in which From Software took advantage of polygonal graphics, Sony reached out about publishing a new game. From accepted, and a partnership was formed. Essentially, this means that Sony gave From Software money and resources in exchange for an exclusive game on their system and a small cut of the profits. Information in English on the first Armored Core is sparse. I'm pulling a lot of this information from just two interviews, one from an issue of Gamers Republic and another from Next Generation Magazine. So I might be reading the tea leaves a bit here, but I think with confidence I can say that Armored Core was From's idea, not Sony's. It's clear that there are more than a few diehard mecha fans at the studio, as their gameography will prove. Plus, Sony executives had some reservations about the Armored Core idea. They warned From Software that a robot fighting game would have a much smaller market than their previous games. But undeterred, From pressed on. <laughs> So it's 1996. Armored Core is in active development. Let's talk about the staff. Toshifumi Nabashima. And again, if I were lecturing on the history of Armored Core in a classroom, I would tell you as you're 
diligently taking notes to underline this name. Um, this gentleman directed the first game. And if there's a Mr. Armored Core, it's him. Nabashima guided the series in either a supervisory role or as a producer for over 15 years. He didn't work on Kingsfield, so Armored Core was his big break in the industry. To my knowledge, unfortunately, there are no extant interviews from around this time in English, so we really don't have any resources that shed light on his perspective on the first game's development. But recently, Nabashima has been a bit more public-facing, but for unrelated reasons. His last credit at From Software was in 2015 as a scriptwriter on Dark Souls 2. He left the company afterwards. He hasn't talked about his departure in detail, but considering that From hasn't released any Armored Core games since then, there's probably a connection. I'm assuming he left because From, after the breakout success of Dark Souls... I imagine that at this point, From began prioritizing that series at the expense of Armored Core or really anything that wasn't attached to Miyazaki, and he probably felt excluded. At this point, I assume he began sending out feelers to other companies around this time, and so he left From Software and joined Square Enix, where he developed the Front Mission spinoff Left Alive, which came out in 2019. PMC is trying to hold back laughter when I mentioned Left Alive. You know, one day we might podcast about Left Alive. If we, okay. It would probably be, like, let's say we do this podcast and simulator episodes for 20 years. <laughs> it would probably be around the 10-year mark after we cover all the front mission games that come before Left Alive. Yeah, let me put it this way. Giant Robot FM supporters and patrons, I have tried twice now to finish Left Alive, and I have not, just not been able to stay interested. It is... It is an unfortunate game in how it plays. The presentation is fine. The idea is so good, though. You're stuck in a war-torn oh, city like, during like Christmas time. The premise is beautiful, but the premise is beautiful, but survival gameplay and stealth gameplay is hard to balance, and you know it's it's pretty rotten at the core, unfortunately. So that's sad. But you know what? If the Giant Robot FM supporters want it someday down the line, God damn it, I'll finish this game. It'll be a while, so maybe there'll be a Left Alive, like, I don't know, international edition by the year 2030. Or, maybe, or maybe a Left Alive 2. I very distinctly remember that, like, the last, I think the last activity maybe on, like, the Left Alive Twitter account was them uh, inviting people to pick up free swag from their PAX East booth in 2019. Was I, I, was, I think I was there. I think we I told were, you to go get it. Oh. I, I, I have vague memory as this. <laughs> oh, man, that's a missed opportunity. <laughs> that might have been the year they were promoting Final Fantasy, the Final Fantasy twelve remaster. Slash oh, yeah, remake. Zodiac Age. Yeah, yeah, yeah and the yeah. producers were there, and they were seem like cool guys, but they're also like focusing a lot on Freya's posterior. And I was like, ew. I mean, yeah, well, that's, that's not surprising. I'm not the audience for this. Unfortunately, I was around audience members who dug that stuff. Yes, sure. But alas, interestingly, after a flurry of promotional activity in the lead up to Left Alive, Nabashima has been pretty quiet. No word if he's still at Square, but here's my galaxy brain take here. Maybe he's back at From developing the new heavily rumored Armored Core game. Time will tell. And Japanese companies tend to work like this. Like if you have a creative figure who's like synonymous with a game series and they leave your company, usually 
companies are very skittish about releasing a new game afterwards. Like when Inafune left Capcom, Capcom took a while to like develop a brand new Mega Man game and really has, haven't released that many new Mega Man games since then. So I imagine that if they were to reboot Armored Core, they'd bring back Nabashima. I'd be very curious if Miyazaki's working on it because we'll talk about Miyazaki on future Armored Core history episodes. But of course, he is not currently at the company in the late 90s. Actually, I don't think he began at the company until like the mid-aughts, like 2005, 2006. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Over, under on new Armored Core game PMC. Do you think it's happening? Say it now for posterity's sake. I think here's what I think. I think it's happening because the only reason I say that is because you're the you, you, it's the brand though. You have to you have the, to the rumor. The, the rumor is that FromSoft has multiple tracks of game development, and if they were only doing one thing at a time, I would say never. But if they have multiple tracks, I feel like there's a chance they got to diversify their portfolio at some time. Even mm-hmm. from maybe even not from a creative perspective, but at least from a business perspective, eventually people are going to want a new aesthetic. Now, Toshi Zin, who you might remember, was the founder of From Software, served as the executive producer on the first Armored Core game. Now, fun fact, he's still with the company. I'm guessing he's in his mid-60s. His last big credit was on the Dark Souls remaster back in 2018. I imagine he's more of like an elder statesman at From Software. He's on the board of advisors. Actually, it's pretty cool working your way through the Armored Core credits just to see if a lot of these guys are still at From Software, and a lot of them are, which is interesting. Now, given that Sony was publishing Armored Core, From had access to a wealth of new resources that they didn't have access to with Kingsfield. And if you're launching a new mecha franchise, it helps to have a star mechanical designer on your project. Enter, drumroll please, Shoji Kawamori. Before we start talking about Kawamori, I got to shout out one thing. From Software released an Armored Core official data book in the probably mid-90s, and there's some pictures of Kawamori from around this time. And he's a stylish dude, as are many of these mechanical designers. But man, he's wearing some, like, what are these, bell-bottoms, PMC? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what's going on. It's got a, quite the flair. It's very 90s with the shirt, but I never... But, yeah, the fit the, is... Yeah, the fit. I guess we're all wearing baggy pants yeah, back then. Yeah, But uh, it's of its time. Mm-hmm. You could, If you wanted to Twitter, if you wanted to search Twitter, you could probably easily find it. So just search Armored Core Official Data Book and some pics will show up. Now, Sony already had a relationship with Kawamori. And again, if you need uh, Kawamori's resume... He did the mechanical designs for Macross, all of the Macross projects. He is like the big creative figure behind that series. We talked extensively about him on our Macross Plus History episode, which if you have not listened to, I recommend that you do. Yep, that's Giant Robot FM1. Yeah. Go, go back there and listen to I it. I imagine if you're a Giant Robot FM patron, you've listened to all the history episodes, but if there's a chance that you didn't, definitely do so. So, like I said, Sony already had a relationship with Kawamori. So it's only a matter of, I assume, getting him on the phone and calling him. Before, and well, after Armored Core, Kawamori was working on a game called Omega Boost. According to Kawamori, quote, Sony got in touch with Studio New on Omega Boost way before the launch of the original PlayStation, end quote. Now, this game called Omega Boost was burdened with production issues and was delayed for years. It finally came out in 1999. But it's a neat curio. Maybe we'll dedicate a simulator episode to it in the future. It's a polyphony digital game. They're the developers of Gran Turismo. 
and it's their only non-Gran Turismo game and was designed by Yuji Yasuhara, who worked on the Panzer Dragoon series. PMC, I know you've played a demo of Omega Boost recently. How did that go? It went well. I, I think all those things that you just mentioned in terms of some of the... Uh, did it feel on rails? It felt a little bit on rails, uh, but like not in a way that it was overwhelming. I think comparing it to Panzer Dragoon makes sense. Like I'm not surprised at all that someone who worked on Panzer Dragoon would have created this game. Uh, and I also think this is one of the best looking PlayStation games yeah. as well. This is, you know, much in the way that Gran Turismo is often regarded as some of the best looking racing on PS1. It is absolutely true that this game uh, just pl- like performs well and looks good when you're playing it. Uh, now, the, I, the demo I played was one of the space levels. I'd be curious. I believe the, the according to the advertisement on the demo disc, there are interior levels as well probably going down a tunnel or something like yeah, that i can't imagine the game's too long though no no it's not i mean i think the um i believe the speed runs for it all come in around 24 25 minutes so uh i and i one important note i have to mention because we love shouting out our favorite dub actors uh in the north american version i believe the pilot is it brian cranston no <laughs> the pilot in the fmv cutscenes, not during the game okay is steve bloom Really? Yeah. Very cool. See, all everything comes together. Everything comes together. Also, interesting to note, it's you can get it dirt cheap. Like you can get a copy, but if you want the original Japanese release or the U.S. release for like thirty bucks, which is uh, a rarity in today's market. So Kawamori wasn't necessarily on the ground floor for Armored Core, but he was still instrumental in the game's development. And even though he wasn't on the ground floor, like he wasn't there day one pitching the idea for Armored Core. Kawamori was and is enthusiastic about the series. He has returned to the franchise on numerous occasions, most recently for For Honor, which came out in 2008. For Answer. For Answer. What did I say? For Honor? For Honor. That's the Ubisoft brawler. Oh, fuck me. (laughs) For Answer, again, which came out in 2008. For Answer was published by Ubisoft in North America. Ah, okay. It's it's a Freudian slip then. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's why I spend my off hours thinking about what Ubisoft (laughs) has published in the mid-aughts. In fact, <laughs> you ever see that meme when it's like the wife and the husband in bed and the wife's thinking like all oh, sorts yeah. of thoughts and the husband's usually making nothing? Well, like, just substitute that with me thinking about like Ubisoft's publishing schedule from the <laughs> mid-2000s. So fun fact though, Kawamori is responsible for the name Armored Core. I'll let him explain. Quote, as I believe that this idea should differentiate this game from the rest of, the comp- of its competition, I propose the concept of the armored cores, meaning that of the core block with cockpit and engine, as well as the joint connectors for head, arm, legs, and weapons, and so on. They adopted the proposal and called it armored core as a consequence. I think this is interesting to zero in on, on like what makes armored core fundamentally different than some, some of its contemporaries. Yeah. Is that the customization really... I think is more powerful. Customization of mechs ain't nothing new. Of course, you want to customize them. It's mechanical. It's very, you know, feels almost tactile in a way. You, you would want to do that. But I think the thing I've learned from actually finally finally playing a MechWarrior game all the way through is that like a lot of those MechWarrior games tend to have customization kind of in the way that you would like tune a race car. Okay. In terms of heat management, array of weapons, so you pick up a mech, mm-hmm. and that mech is mostly already done, but it has hard points for attaching weapons, mm-hmm. and the hard points can accommodate different kinds of weapons. So 
there is customization and the customization does matter, but it's not quite the, the wild west that armored core is where armored, armored core says, well, like, do you want bipedal legs, reverse joint legs, uh, quadruped <laughs> tank treads, you know, like you can really just the answer is quadruped. <laughs> the answer is quadruped, but, um, but like, there's really a, a, a universe and you can use the same cores like with like asterisk for, for like certain arms you can generally use all the all the components with each other as yeah. whatever you want. I think the customization is the real draw for most players. Um, and it makes sense that Kawamori pitched it because, of course, Kawamori is all about things that transform. Of course, in Macross, the principal mecha transforms from a jet into a mech and vice versa. He worked on some transformers, like literally did the mecha designs for like the original Optimus Prime. So you could definitely see some connective tissue there. Yeah. No, I, I think much in the way that, that Kawamori is famous for those transforming designs, I think it, it's not any surprise that he is an excellent fit for designs that are meant to feel like you can pick them apart and put them back together again. When you said excellent fit, I immediately thought of Kawamori and those bell bottoms. Exactly. No, just like that. Do you have a favorite design from Armored Core? And like, how do you feel about Kawamori's like, Armored Core designs in general? I would say, well, I, I mean, we'll get to it in a second. I'm afraid to answer that question because I might pick a one that isn't a Kamori design, as as we'll soon oh, discover. Man. But uh, <laughs> I love when I wake up in the morning and like the literal mechanical designer is knocking on my Twitter door. <laughs> but I mean, long answer short, I feel like the um, if I had to pick one, I think, and, and again, hopefully, this is a Kamori design. The Project Phantasma cover guy. I know I looked up his oh, name. Oh, that's a good one. That guy with the big, the, the big green round guy? shoulders. Yeah. Just something about that really, really just like works for me, especially in the way that it's so early, early PS1 3D, but also it's, but it, but it feels more real than that. Like it, there's an early 3D where you look at that and you say like, oh, that's just like, that looks like a, like a plastic tub, <laughs> but, but no, it looks like a mech. It's just, you know, it's a very clean mech. It's a, it's, Oh, this is, this is the new thing. I see, see the new thing coming. I got to look up the cover for the Japanese version of project Phantasma, because that might be the one time where I prefer the U S cover. Cause I like that. Like bulbous mech. I mean, project, yeah. I'm pretty sure the project Phantasma JP cover is similar yeah, in is. aesthetic to the AC one cover. Yeah, actually. Okay. I'll go on record. Even though we're not going to talk much about project Phantasma today. I prefer the cover for the U S release. I like that bulky ass design. Yeah. It's very endearing. Whatever the name of that mech is. Yeah. The DM 59 or whatever it has like stenciled on its arm. I would probably say, I don't know. The problem with armored core is since it's so focused on customization, you don't really get like a feel for like the identity of your own original mech just because it's always changing. Presumably. And some of like the nondescript quote unquote grunt mechs don't really stand out. It's not like they're like the Leos from Gundam Wing. I might say nine ball. I don't want to be that guy. No, but but I, I was about to say that is that people tend to gravitate towards the enemy designs because those are the ones that you see frequently. Nine ball certainly dominates one in Master of Arena. Literally and figuratively. Whenever those mechs show up on the battlefield, I usually get my ass whooped immediately mm -hmm. because they unleash like a torrent of fire on me. Uh, Project Phantasma will also have two two ACs that we'll probably get to when we get when we cover that mm. that game. Very cool. Yeah, so I'm pro Kawamori's designs overall. Armored Core is definitely not my favorite designs of his. I would probably point to probably Macross, as I'm I mean, sure most people would. Yeah. Yeah.
Kawamori gets top billing as mechanical designer, which makes sense, but he isn't the sole mechanical designer, a fact that's misrepresented in the official credits. I learned this the hard way when I posted the Vixen from Project Phantasma on Mecha Day, a Twitter account I run, which I credited to Kawamori. I was corrected by at sleek zero zero, a gentleman by the name of Kaichi Sato, who was its actual designer. According to his Twitter profile, Sato is now a former game designer. So I imagine he's not in game development. I imagine also he hasn't been in game development for a while. According to him, he was at From Software in the mid-90s and worked on the original Armored Core and Project Phantasma. Now, turns out his contributions are integral to the franchise. And he is in the official credits, but not to... The official credits don't represent just how much he contributed to these first two games. And not a lot of fans know about this. He was, quote, in charge of story, level design, pixel art, and so on. End quote. So yeah, Sato's pretty important. PMC, did you know about Sato's contributions to the original AC? No, but I really like I really like pixel art because pixel art to me uh, refers probably to one of two things. Maybe it refers to textures, but it probably refers to all of those goddamn emblems. Yeah. You probably didn't see too many emblems in AC1. No, but I know what you're talking about. But as you play Project Phantasma and Master Arena, especially as you do arena battles in either of those games, there is a ton of emblems. And not to mention the emblem editor embedded in... I was going to say, you can customize them, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I imagine fans have put a lot of dicks in there. Yes, among other things. <laughs> I don't know how to transition eloquently from dicks to... Uh, world building but here we go because now i think is a good time to talk about the story i'll let the instruction manual do the talking pmc i'm gonna throw it to you here all right this is this is my favorite i love to read there's nothing quite as good as like a single page plot summary of a playstation one game story the last war waged among nations known as the great destruction ended with mankind vanishing from the surface of the earth the echo of humanity that survived left the howling winds and radioactive dust to make their home underground. Half a century later, the concept of the nation is no more. Instead, corporations lead and rule the populace. Though the world is making a rapid recovery through ruthless corporate competition, social disorder resurfaces as disparities in wealth, terrorist outbreaks, and racism refuse to go away. The ruling corporations, seeking ever greater power and wealth, refuse to let the strife end. It is a new world order where lives are bought and sold in a twisted free market economy. But there are always exceptions to every rule. The Ravens mercenaries who take on any mission for a price pledge allegiance to nothing and no one and exist beyond the control of the corporations. Hired to take out the competition, the Ravens take no sides and fight without regard for good or evil. Man, what a fantasy world that is. Like, can you imagine actually living this world? I say sarcastically. How many how many words do you have to change here to to just make this a summary of uh, the world we live in? <laughs> it's it's kind of like two on the nose though. 
Oh, it is. And, and, you know, I think, you know, having seen where this goes, I think you already re reacted to some of this is that some of these things, some of these things that you get in game could be emails that were just sent to, uh, to Amazon council or Starbucks yeah, exactly. council, you know, or waking up in the morning and finding out that Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter or something like exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any, I'll, I'll ask you this before I jump into my own thoughts, but do you have any thoughts on the setting or story? Because for me, this is probably my favorite part of the game. I think the setting is, I think the setting is perfect. What I like about Armored Core setting versus the, versus Kingsfield is Kingsfield feels like it should be much more personal. There's bloodlines, you're running, you're meeting people face to face. It, it. It's hard to square that, to square the dungeon crawler with what felt feels like the lack of personal connection and warmth. In Armored Core, everything tells you that other human beings are at arm's length. Mm. You're you're in a machine, the surface sucks ass, you're a mercenary who takes jobs from pay for people who don't care about your well being. The people who do care about other people's well being don't get paid well enough. Etc. Etc. So I think this setting works really well for a game that is not going to do much direct storytelling. Yeah, I'm. Also, it's wild how much of the from software DNA that we now know the company for, like the Souls DNA, mm. was with the company since the beginning, which I did not expect. Honestly, like you could draw so many lines from Armored Core of all things to Elden Ring. How many years later? Like 25 years later. It's kind of wild in that regard. Obviously, like you mentioned, there's not a lot of plot in the first Armored Core. What little morsels of lore we do get are in the mission briefings, which usually amounts to just a few paragraphs, if that. The text is darkly satirical, which I interpret as purposeful. I could say that definitively, but at the beginning of the game, I wasn't sure. Because like, as a leftist, I was initially perturbed when I got my objectives for the first few missions, because I didn't know if this was like a 90 ass, 90s ass video game with hyperbolic language. But I sit down to play Armored Core, the new hot shit from some from software, and I open, I, you know, I open up the case, put the disc in, start up the game, get to the first mission, and it goes, you are to eliminate a group of illegal squatters at an abandoned factory on the east side of the city. They profess to be radicals opposed to area redevelopment. There is no need for restraint. We want you to firmly teach them the rules of society. And I was like, shit, like what side am I on here? I didn't know if this was like, I don't know, like a John Romero game or something. Not to say that John Romero leans conservative. I don't know what his political beliefs are, but I, like, I didn't know like where the tone was going. But of course, I soon realized this was intentional. The writing is almost, the writing is like so good. It's hyperbolic. The corporations are framed as comically and monolithically evil. Like, they're clearly the villains. And this post-apocalyptic world is so bleak because of their actions. There's a good tweet that came out recently in the wake of all the Elden Ring discourse. Um, and I'll just read the first part of the tweet, but it goes, Literally every FromSoft game, colon, Power corrupts people, and the ruling class is willing to do anything to those they're meant to protect, and even to themselves in an attempt to hold onto that power and maintain control. And like, that's been there since the beginning. So kudos, I guess, to From for, like, I don't know, fighting the good fight and pushing back. Like, encouraging players to critique and interrogate power structures. Like, that's dope. That's always 
dope-ass shit, but it's especially surprising coming from a video game released in 1996. The writing can also be surprisingly deadpan, too. There's a mission I got to. Um, It goes, several civilian vehicles remain in the garage. Damages to the vehicles will be deducted from your pay. Sorry, but we've got budget problems, too. Good luck. Like, I love that shit. I want more, like, mission briefings. Did you feel similarly, PMC? When yeah, I, so when I, before I started speedrunning Armored Core, you know, I just revisited it casually for the first time in years, and I was astonished by how satisfying the final run of missions is. Yeah. The tone of the final run of missions, you have, you have the expected climax, which is the corporate showdown between Chrome and Morkumo. Implicitly through the player's actions, you have ended up siding with either Chrome or Morkumo. Let me ask, which side? Hmm? Do you remember which side your initial playthrough? I think in my initial playthrough, I ended up... Uh, the problem is, I remember. I always remember the missions. I think I think I ended up siding with... Uh, I want to say I sided with Chrome in my initial playthrough. I think I, I sided with Morkumo. Suck it, Chrome. Yeah, well, Morkumo, I think, is usually faster. So I've done that more often. Morkumo is certainly faster for the no, the no skip missions category. Mm. But... What's really satisfying is that you, you get through that. There's sort of, you know, a rise in tension. You have some really bombastic missions either way. Like either you're destroying a space cannon or taking out a bunch of drones and some really some bombastic missions. And then once things settle down, you get a few of these missions that are like, oh, you know, there's just some remnants. And like the, the tone of the emails get really like casual and friendly. Yeah. Oh, could you just take care? Let's check down there. Oh, you know, like. Ah, uh, this. So some terrorists broke into the base, and we took care of them already. <laughs> but they left some explosives, so we're gonna pay you a ton of money. Just take care of the explosives. It's not a big deal, really. And of course, that's the final mission in the game, yeah. in which the computer that controls society is trying to have you killed because you're too powerful. Yeah. So it's it's just it is incredible storytelling for for this kind of format, and I. Like, if you ask me which Armored Core is my favorite, it probably remains AC1 because of that final sequence. Have you played an Armored Core from every generation? I have played four. That's the only that's the only PS3 360 era Armored Core I've played. Okay. So I've not played any of five or Verdict Day. Like, if you say generation, and you, like, people tend to break them into the PS1 trilogy, the two duology, the three duology, the Nexus trilogy, four and four answer, five and verdict day okay so i have played ps1 trilogy both games of the two duology three armored core four okay so i haven't played any of five or verdict day but uh, or or any of the nexus trilogy okay but i don't know I, I i'd be curious to see if they changed my opinion the storytelling in four was wild like that was definitely the storytelling in four <laughs> uh really is like the same exact rhythm and and timbre i've seen anytime i've watched an elden ring narrative bit really exactly the same Miyazaki, because oh, i believe Miyazaki directs four armored core four i think i think that's when he joins the company around that no yeah, age, he but- joins the company around t- the time of silent line so it's yeah. like yeah so he's like he's working on stuff in the ps2 games but he doesn't mm-hmm. direct until four i don't okay. think yeah so take a shot every time we mention dark souls <laughs> but like its successor series the world building of armored core is unobtrusive it's not as poetic or melancholic as Dark Souls, but players are encouraged to read between the lines and piece together clues to learn more about this world, which I like. 
There are parts that are just downright incomprehensible, but that's almost to be expected of the genre. Like I said, too, the story with a capital S is minimal, sometimes a bit incomprehensible. It's very fragmented. There are a lot of omissions. Interestingly, to celebrate the series' uh, 10th anniversary in 2006, Katakawa, and I haven't mentioned Katakawa yet, but they're the media conglomerate that owns From. They're basically like a big publishing conglomerate. They publish a lot of books. And man, I mean, whoever just... I have to look into this. I'm not sure if Katakawa was there like in 1986 when uh, Zin founded the company, but like if they picked up From Software in the, like the... Whoever like suggested if this did occur like this to pick up From Software like in the 90s, like, wow, that acquisition is bearing so much fruit now financially. But anyway, um, they published a book called Armored Core 10 Works Complete File, which dives deep into the world building of the series and outlines the series' various timelines. The book sheds light on some of these mysteries and inconsistencies of the first game. It's basically Armored Core's perfect works for you Xenogears fans out there. Would love to see this translated like perfect works by a fan. Um, but a lot of that information is available on wikis, and the major chapters of the book, as well as like what those chapters cover, are also documented online if you want to check it out. But yeah, super cool find. And as we'll talk about, there's not much supplemental material pertaining to the Armored Core series. Even though the first Kingsfield was a success for From, internally, again, we're still in the mid-90s at this point, the company still saw video game development as more of a gamble. They didn't put all their eggs in the game development basket. I say presumably, but I think they were still making accounting a software alongside Kingsfield and Armored Core. And even though they were expanding their production lines, their dev teams were still really small at this time. Initially, From didn't even have in-house composers to handle audio and sound. For Kingsfield 1 through 3, FromSoft outsourced the music and sound effects to a company called, this is all in caps, Sound Kids Corp. I couldn't track down too much information on the company, but it seems they might have had a hand in producing music for the live-action Phoenix Wright. PMC, out of curiosity, have you ever seen that movie? I have not. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely worth a, a watch. Now, for Armored Core, FromSoft partly outsourced the music. They partnered with a different company this time around. Again, in the official credits, for whatever reason, this company's name is also all in caps. And it has a pretty banger name. Dragon and Company, Inc. A young composer named Masaru Tatayama was tasked with composing the soundtrack. Interestingly... And unfortunately, this was the only AC OST that Tatayama worked on. I couldn't track down any other credits for him. However, Tatayama wasn't alone. Composing responsibilities were split between him and Keiichiro Sagawa, a FromSoft employee. Sagawa really helped establish the soundscape and aural feel that would become synonymous with Armored Core. He worked on a bunch of FromSoft's early mecha games like Frame Grid, Armored Core 2, and Morikumo, 
Now, PMC, you're the music guy here. Hit me with some hot takes. Do you have any favorite pieces from Armored Core? Yeah, so I got some favorite pieces. I would probably say uh, Shape Memory Alloys, the music that plays during the menu, is in absolutely incredible. Uh, one one of the all-time bangers. Uh, the other one I always come back to in the, uh, in the Armored Core uh, playlist, I think it's called... I want to say it begins... It's the one that plays during the credits um now if you're listening to let's say if you're doing some work you're listening to the armored core music do you put on the original tracks from the game or the slightly remixed uh pieces from the soundtrack i typically go for the original tracks although I've, a lot of times those albums are arranged such that they have like the like the like the a certain remix at the end anyway so yeah. i end up listening to them do you find that the music, because we'll talk about how some critics interpret the music changing as the series goes on, do you think it gets better or worse, or it's just different? I mean, I, I would probably say it's mostly just different. I think, for me, it's less memorable, and I think the reason for that, I think electronic music, especially for this era of game, is really important because... It mean, brings me back instantly to a specific time and brings place. brings you to a specific time, but I would also say the thing about like the kind of electronic music that you hear in the early Armored Core games is that you absolutely cannot, you can't really tie them to anything tangible. Yeah. Like if you hear an orchestral track or uh, a rock track or anything like that, you'll think of, you'll think of artists that exist, you know, real flesh and blood, fresh and blood, uh, flesh and blood humans. But when you hear the Armored Core music, <laughs> you probably more think of machines. Yeah. And I think that's, a again, talking about the, the ability to insert distance between you and other human beings, that is a big mood, as they might say, in Armored Core. And I think the music plays a pivotal role in that. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, comparison. Is it, it jogged a, like a factoid in my mind, even though it's completely unrelated. Do you know anything about like Soviet music from the 1920s? <laughs> I do not, comrade. No. Well, <laughs> as you might be able to guess, um, during this revolutionary time in Russia, they were experimenting with music, and of course, um, oh, that's the era where the theremin comes out of, right? Is that? I think so. Okay. Um, and of course, uh, orchestral tracks would be music of the capitalists, the bourgeoisie. So, in order to uh, upend the status quo, some composers tried to, like, I guess like recreate the sounds of a factory floor or I guess like imagine what an orchestra would be like if it were run by machines. Now the music is nowhere near as good as the armored core soundtrack, but I, now I like to think of the armored core soundtrack as like a, a natural progression of mm -hmm, that. Of course. And I agree with your take on the music. I think it's like all bangers all the way through. I prefer the more the menu -y music. If you get like my mean, like the, the music that does a lot of vibe setting. GameOST.com has a really solid assessment of the music, so I'm just going to quote them here. Quote, The music for the game was quite distinct from other mecha titles in the game, and rather than offer military orchestrations like Front Mission or anime-styled tunes like Super Robot Tyson, Ke Keichiro Sagawa created an experimental electronic score for the title. While the compositions are sparsely used within the main gameplay, they are important for setting the tone for the game and preparing players for the various missions. Now, I've also read that the music gets a lot more industrial as the series mm, goes on, which yeah. I'm open to. When I think industrial music, I think of something like Silent Hill, which doesn't always produce like 
inviting soundscapes, but I'm definitely open to experimentations on the formula. One thing, while we're talking about sound, and this may be, this may be more appropriate for our, our takes later on, but I really want to highlight this now because I think a big part of why it impacts me so much is the sound. I do not know. Now, of course, Armored Core is a game where you don't necessarily end up playing every mission. I imagine once you finish your playthrough, you didn't go back and play the missions you hadn't played. No, but I'm oh, I'm considering going back to cleaning those up. Okay. Well, did you play a mission called Recover Capsules? Yes. Okay. One of my f- favorite missions in any Armored Core, the lack of music, just the haunting, echoing sounds, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the machines operating on their own, the drops in the floor, just like one of the most incredible abandoned industrial vibes yeah. I've ever encountered in a game. And to me, that's an example of sound design being used to really cement that. And also the music that you're normally used to jamming to being absent. So I wanted yeah. to call out that silence with the haunting sound effects while we're you know on the topic of sound here. And like vibes like that have only improved in like the three decades since this game has been released. Maybe I'm just nostalgic, but going back in the year 2022 and playing something like Silent Hill or like something like Shenmue, there is like a sense of unreality that permeates those games because they're stuck in a particular era. And there's something very haunting about these low poly games, which just like slaps, especially if the tone of the environment is paired, like if, like if, if like you're meant to feel unsettled, um, in these missions or in these games, which considering the games I cited, I think that's an appropriate comparison. Now, the soundtrack for the first Armored Core did have a physical release in Japan under the title Armored Core Original Music Files in 1997. It features 19 tracks. All of it's uploaded on YouTube. It's great music to do work to. Like I, I took notes to the music. I've done some writing to the music. It's on my like permanent playlist going forward. I get the feeling, and we'll talk more about this in our follow-up episode on Phantasma and Arena, that Sony had From on a tight-ish leash. FromSoft spent the better part of a year developing the graphics engine for Armored Core, like just the engine it's running on. And while one year seems quaint by 2022 standards, for comparison, Elden Ring, FromSoft's latest game, was in development for over five years. In the mid-90s, it was a solid amount of time. Many, many games were developed in the span of a year or a year and a half. And From was obligated to Sony to release the game in a timely fashion. We'll talk more about that with Phantasma in our next episode. Because that dictates a lot of why that game even exists in the first place. Now, leading up to its release, Sony and From promoted the game at trade shows. It made an appearance at the 1996 PlayStation Expo at E3 1997. PMC, do you know what the PlayStation Expo was? No. I had to look this up because I didn't either. It's basically Sony Space World. When I say Space World, do you know what I mean? No. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm an old man. 
Space World was Nintendo's exclusive trade show. Ah. Their last one occurred in the GameCube era. It was like their personal E3. Okay. And I believe PlayStation, it definitely did one of these in 1996. It was in Japan, I think. And in Tokyo, to be specific. And I think there might have been another one in 1995. And of course, they've had other PlayStation exclusive events since then. Like more recently with the, oh, I can't remember what it's called. The PlayStation Expo, maybe. Remember when I go to the movie theater, like yeah, a good corporate yeah. like consumer, yes, and no, watch I, the Sony press conferences? I, I do remember that. They, talking about companies ruling our lives, mm-hmm. but um, there's an expo tied to that release, or to that press conference, I think. They would do it right before E3. Well, whatever. It was an event that exists it, it exists no more. It's a blip in the radar, but I found it interesting nonetheless. Uh, Sony showed off Armored Core then, probably the first time it made its uh, debut in the public. From also for these trade shows, cut a demo, which Sony included on a bunch of demo discs. It was featured alongside other late 90s gems like Crash Bandicoot 2, Intelligent Cube, and Parappa the Rapper. Now, PMC, you're, you're definitely a demo disc enthusiast. Have you ever encountered a demo of the first AC? I can say for a fact that as a child, I had that demo on some demo disc. I am uncertain as to what demo disc it was, but I can remember... Playing the multiplayer against uh, one of my childhood friends, and I think you you had like a very small assortment of weapons that you could use to customize your AC in the multiplayer. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, do you use the chain gun or do you try to use the dumb fire rockets? I don't know. It was fun trying to use the chain gun on your on your friend. It was very silly. I can say more recently that I encountered that demo on uh, Volume One, Issue Three of PlayStation Underground, which is a a series that I've been running through. It was like a CD magazine that uh, I think was, I, I think it was, you know, officially owned by Sony. There is also a separate series of demo discs that um, was, that was a part of that was accompanying official PlayStation magazine in that era. And I wouldn't be surprised if this demo shows up on one of those as mm-hmm. well. Like for example, uh, recently speaking of Omega boost, uh, you had reached out to me about getting some high-res screenshots of the uh, of a picture from an art gallery that was included it's with true. a PlayStation demo disc, and I thought I because I, I had an encounter that art gallery on an underground demo disc. I just assumed it must have been one of the official PlayStation magazine demo discs. I hunted down that demo disc, got it, got you the art. The next demo disc that I streamed from Underground had that. Omega Boost demo with that art gallery. Oh, that's right. I was I remember watching that. Yeah. So I, I think you know, and that's not surprising, right? Like, of course, <laughs> of course, if you go through the effort, especially of making a demo specific build with demo specific features, you're gonna just throw that out to a bunch of different. Yeah. It's like the Final Fantasy VIII demo, the the Renoa and Dalit. You know, like that was released by itself. It was released with. Um, that's the, like one of the opening missions of the game with the, the awesome track, The Landing. Yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah, very good. Talk very about good. like an all-time great workout yep. mech track mix. Um, if you ever wonder what mecha podcasters, like what messages we send each other, <laughs> just imagine me slipping into your DMs like 2 a.m. Like, can you find me the mechanical designs for Omega Boost, a 1999 PlayStation game? I know it. And like adding on to that message, I know it featured in a demo disc compilation. I know you know demo disc. Hunt this down for me. And, the, and I did it. <laughs> yeah, which I appreciate because the YouTube footage was not up to my liking. In case you're curious, like how extensively I curate and vet the images I use on Mecha Day, pretty extensive, which you'd be surprised how long it takes me to like track down um, like original illustrations. 
Now, Sony published Armored Core in the US, which means they also handled the localization. And I got to say, I think they did a bang-up job, especially by 1997 standards, especially thinking about some other Sony-published games. Not to slag on Sony in this regard. Usually their localizations were pretty good for the time. While there's a minimal amount of text, the localizers nailed the sardonic and occasionally wry tone. The voice actors do a solid job given the limitations of the game's scope. Fun fact, Greg Weber casted and directed the voice talent for Armored Core. He hasn't done much in the last 10 years, but he did. He oversaw the voice work on Deadly Premonition back in 2010. And PMC, you also find this interesting. He also worked as a like voice caster and voice director on Slave Zero. God, that makes so much sense. Well, okay, I'm sorry. You brought up Slave Zero voice acting, so I just have to say right now. Does Steve Bloom make an appearance in that? I don't think so, but uh, if I say, I assume if I say Charles Martinet, you know I'm talking about. Wow, I, d- I didn't know any of his other roles outside <laughs> the, of Nintendo. The voice of Mario. But he is, uh, Slave Zero has a bunch of uh, vaguely uh, Asian illusions, and Charles oh Martinet is like <laughs> the voice of like an ancient ghost that occasionally whispers in your ear in slave zero does he sound anything like mario <laughs> no but i wish he did <laughs> i gotta look up his uh gameography i'm curious what else he's worked on outside of you know mario games uh, but yeah no i i do want to agree with you though like this this localization I, I think when we talk about 90s localizations we expect i think one of two things either things to be like really like played up hammed up yeah or we expect to hear like one of five voice actors yeah you don't encounter that in the armored core localizations, uh, which just feels wild. I, again, I, I think you're right to call out Sony, but this, I think this level of quality persists into project, project Phantasma and mass arena. And as we'll get to in those episodes, that is not localized. I don't think so by Sony. Yeah. Uh, unless they somehow, you know, contracted the office to do it. The, uh, the new publisher for those games, uh, the North American publisher. So just, uh, yeah, I mean, shout outs, shout outs to the effort done here. Yeah, it's it's very it feels very contemporary because even localizations I like a lot. Like I like working designs a lot. When you were replaying Vanguard Bandits, I'm surprised how many slurs were in that game. Like I was like floored. Yeah, yeah. So you know, like I mentioned, hyperbolic language and also potentially offensive language, and none of that is in Armored Core. Um, I was worried at first based on the tone whether or not um, like what were the political leanings of the game, but now it's all very palatable by today's standards. Now, Armored Core released on July 10th, 1997 in Japan and on October 25th, 1997 in America. Pouring out for European fans, they had to wait a whole year. They didn't get the game until June 1998. While they're using the same image as the base, I got to call it out. The Japanese box art is way more stylish, I think. PMC, do you agree? I do agree. I want to call out two details uh, about this. First off, I want to I want to talk about the text. I'm a really huge fan of the interlocking O's between yeah. Armored and Core. I think that's a really good looking design. I wish they had kept that. Kind of looks like a dog tag too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's again, it's very mechanical. The other thing I would call out is that, and now this is this is me like shoving up my glasses at my co-host here. It does look like the Japanese cover mech has a has a shoulder-mounted rocket launcher, missile launcher on its right shoulder, which is missing from the the American cover. I don't know why that is. Now, uh, Armored Core, if there's Armored Core fans listening to this, they're going to they're going to insist that I point out this bit of trivia, which is uh you absolutely cannot 
in the first armored core have a machine gun in each hand, have a rifle in each hand. That is true. That is that is not in the rules. You can't do that. I do believe there is eventually a game later on, maybe in the Nexus trilogy where you can do that. And they have this design as like, you know, one of like the random designs they include mm. as a nod to the original cover of Armored Core 1. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, those later entries are surprisingly like meta and self-referential. Oh, yeah. Like There's a ton of... Even, even when I played Armored Core 4, I would see tons of, in Armored Core 4 parts, references to characters that I knew from the games I had played. Yeah, like it, it's the games are very aware of its legacy or their legacy. Armored Core got solid reviews upon release, both in Japan and America. Famitsu gave it a 28 out of 40. The three reviewers at EGM gave it an 8.5, 8.0, and 8.5. IGN gave it an 8. All respectable scores. Famitsu was a little low, but I guess that means From didn't put the check in the mail. I will say this. Those are very high scores for Armored Core 1 from EGM. Those scores will dip yeah. dramatically for future I releases. I don't think Armored Core ever reviews well again. Especially subsequent entries in a, like an individual series. Mm-hmm. Like usually when like the first game in a set comes yeah, out. Yeah, 2 maybe does better just because it's PS2 and yeah. that's like a huge step up. But I feel like there's also Armored Core fatigue like during that generation mm-hmm. where like, I don't know, the, how many from, from soft Armored Core games there are there in the span of like 15 years? Like, it's mean, almost like one a year. Just on PS2 alone, there's seven. Yeah. And then there's the PSP game. So I, it's not surprising right? yeah like i feel fatigued just thinking about yakuza like after playing yakuza zero i'm like done with the series i feel like i got my yakuza feel i couldn't and i feel the same way with something like phoenix right armored core is a little bit more palatable just because you can kind of get through the game quicker than those two examples i brought up but still that's a lot of time to dedicate to one series since 1997 there have been several re-releases of the first Armored Core. In Japan, it was re-released digitally for PS3 and later the Vita on July 26th, 2007. It took a whole eight years, but on March 24th, 2015, it came out in North America for the PS3, PSP, and Vita. Notably, it was included on the PlayStation Classic, but only in Japan. I'm surprised it wasn't Kingsfield, given Japanese players' affinity for dungeon crawlers, but no, they chose AC, which is unique yeah I, I wonder if that had anything to do with um with i mean i know it's japan so i i, I imagine from software self-published actually that's a good question did they did they self-publish armored core oh no well okay wikipedia says they self-published armored core in japan but like again as you mentioned sony was involved yeah in the creation of that, that makes game. the most sense so that's probably that is i mean that's part of the thing too is that um as you mentioned Armored Core does show up on PSN in North America eventually. Project Phantasma and Master of Arena are on JP PSN, but they have never shown up on North America PSN. Yeah, maybe that speaks to the popularity, or there might be some strange rights reason, or maybe not the demand for it. I mean, I still don't know. Do it, folks, if you know who owns all of the Agitech rights, <laughs> like just tell me. Yeah. Shout us out on Twitter. Yeah. If, you, if you yourself own the rights, yeah. let us know. If you got them on a slip of paper, I'll pick them up. <laughs> also, word to the wise, do not play Armored Core on the Vita. Do not do it. When we Uh-oh. decided to do the simulator episode, I tweeted out because I was so excited. I bought the copy on PSN. Okay. I was excited to play it in bed on a handheld. Man, it's almost impossible because you don't have the L 
you don't really have the L2 and R2 to mess with the camera. It is a mess. Now, I will say the primary way that I have played Armored Core recently, well, one of two ways. One of the ways is using a PS1 DualShock on a PS1, which is pretty comfortable. But for speedrunning purposes, the uh, I have played it using my PS TV. So, Putting up his glasses again. Yeah, so I can playing with DualShock 3, the superior DualShock. Maybe one day I'll be playing Armored Core on my Polymega, but time will tell. Now, like I said, there's been no official remake of AC. Maybe that rumored AC game will be in some way a reimagining of the first game. Wouldn't be the first time From Software went back and reimagined the events of the first Armored Core game. However, From did remake a bunch of missions from the original Armored Core trilogy for Armored Core Nexus, which came out in 2004 for the PS2 which players could access on the second disc, which I think that disc was called Revolution. Some of my favorite missions, allegedly, from the first game were reimagined in this new PS2 engine, so I'm definitely interested in checking them out. PMC, what is Nexus? I didn't do too much research on this game. Oh, Nexus. So the Nexus trilogy, which includes uh, Ninebreaker and Last Raven, seems to be... I've never played them myself. My, my understanding is that there are two big things going on. One... They just get really hard for some reason. Everyone talks about them like they're the hardest shit on the planet. And then the other thing is that it's when they finally start adopting a more modern control scheme. I believe you can actually start doing dual stick stuff like you would in any other game that had been doing (laughs) for years at that point in in 2004. Uh, But I've never... I mean, unless those control schemes are similar to the control schemes in Armored Core 4, which I did play, I wouldn't know. Uh, I'm curious about those games. I mean, the good news for me is that uh, chances are if I play those games, I'm going to also be doing it with an interest in speedrunning, which means I might know the speedrunning tech, which hopefully means they will be much more digestible mm-hmm. than whatever the perceived difficulty is that people bump up against. Oh, wow. I had trouble with the first Armored Core, so I imagine I'll have much more trouble with the Nexus. Armored Core 1. So there is, I should actually find it for you. There is a graphic that the Armored Core subreddit made for getting people into Armored Core with their recommendations interesting, on what's easy, what's hard, what's approachable. What's interesting from them is that they consider Armored Core 1 and its uh, PS1 brood to be of medium difficulty in okay. Armored Core. A little better now. And they consider, I think they consider the three games, the three and Silent Line, to be the easiest to get into. Uh, but they, they do, you know, as much like everyone else, they identify the Nexus trilogy as being difficult. Are those the really expensive ones? Probably. They probably had super small printing runs. Yeah. Wait, so like 2004, 2005, 2006, around that time? I think so. That's right. Yeah.
That kind of wraps it up for our history, but we are by no means done here. So we talked about the production history of the game. We talked about the origins of From Software, but now we're going we're to talk about general takes because we've both played Armored Core recently. Of course, PMC probably replayed it for the 20th, no, probably like the 70th time. Yeah, but I did I did 100% it for the first time Okay, for this for this podcast. And I played it for the first time. So I'll start off here. I'll be honest. I had a rough time at first with Armored Core. If I wasn't playing it for a podcast, I would have probably bounced. The controls take a lot of getting used to. At times, I, they felt stiff for me, which might intentionally reflect the weight of the mechs, but this clunkiness is at odds with how quick the enemies move. To its credit, I think Armored Core is at its best when it's using this weight to its advantage in arena fights or one-on-one battles with MTs. PMCs, what, what, what does MT stand for? Muscle again? Tracer. Muscle Tracer. Thank you for... I, I, I was going to guess, but it was not going to be Muscle Tracer, so I don't know what the hell I was going to say. Now, these encounters, these one-on-one encounters with Muscle Tracers <laughs> play out like a duel, with both mechs circling each other until someone lands a killing blow. It's Dark Souls-esque, you might say. However, I think the engine buckles with aerial combat, especially when you're facing off against planes. Those fucking planes. <laughs> The, the camera struggles to catch up, and while you have a full arsenal at your disposal, which includes heat-seeking missiles, I feel like there's nothing that truly compensates for this disparity. Your field of view is either too jerky or too grounded. Either way, it's frustrating. I often feel like I'm at an unintentional disadvantage. One of the weird things about this, and and I think I remarked upon this when I when I paid a visit to to see how you were doing. Yeah, he, he had to come drive. He biked to my house <laughs> to help me out. Is that if if y'all have played the game, you'll know this. But for those of you who haven't, the one of the ways that the game works is that you you aren't there isn't lock on in the traditional sense, and there isn't manual aiming in the traditional sense. Instead. You can customize your armored core with a FCS, so I think it's like firing control system. And what it means is that what you're trying to do is that based on your FCS, you have either a, a wide and shallow or long and narrow targeting box that is at the center of your, your screen. And based on that, you need to put your enemies uh, within range and also within the box. So wide and shallow makes it easier because you have a bigger box, but if they're too far away, it won't lock on. Long and narrow, as you can guess, harder to fit them in the box, but you've got more distance to work with. Typically, I'm always almost always using wide and shallow because I just would rather rush that shit down. Um, but of course, you know you can make long and narrow work. That's the beauty of customizing it. But that said, it certainly... If that's not immediately obvious, and like most things about Harvard Core, it's not immediately <laughs> obvious, that could be very frustrating. And, and it's also, it, but it's just very unintuitive. I think what you're saying, the clunkiness is very much intentional. One of the fun things when you're in the garage is that you can pull down, you can hit triangle, and it brings up more numbers than you've ever wanted in your life. <laughs> and one of the things I think it usually brings up for, I forget if it's for mechs or for like the mech as a unit or if it's like legs or, or torso, but it does identify that one of the things that separates armored cores is their turning speed. Turning speed is explicitly surfaced as a feature of your, of your armored core. So I think the de- game's designers know 
know that you want to turn faster, but they, <laughs> they're going to make you, they're going to nickel and dime you for that turning yeah, speed. Definitely. They're like bright when the Xeon soldiers um, sneak their way on board the, you know, Boone and the other Xeon soldiers sneak their way on the white base as disguised as fishermen. And they say, yeah, we'll fix your ship, but we're going to charge you for it. That's, that's from software's uh, design mentality. I should say, I kept mentioning, I kept saying that the controls are clunky. The real selling point of the game is that the mechs move fast, which I think is true. It's just I find the camera sometimes too grounded, if that makes any sense. I don't want to suggest that the game always plays slow, because in fact, it's kind of the opposite. The mechs do move quickly. It's not like you're playing Steel Battalion or something. But there's some tension there between the fast, the potential for your mech to move very fast and like your fucking camera, which sometimes cannot be cannot cooperate in the least now speaking about controls this game needs a quick turn (laughs) i know you have the option to center the camera by pressing l2 and r2 and then you can manually turn around using the directional buttons but it just isn't the same you know thinking about similar series resident evil didn't get a quick turn until three which came out in 1999 three years after the first armored core pmc i have to ask you do future games have a quick turn i don't think Armored Core 4 had a quick turn. Oh, I can't think of PS2 games having a quick turn. Uh, there are other things that you'll get in terms of movement. In particular, Overboost is a thing that comes up in 2, which it, you may you may find of interest whenever we get there. But I don't think they ever have anything like a quick turn. From, from it's it, the, the year is 2023. You're releasing the new Armored Core game for PlayStation 5. Include a quick turn, damn it. Assuming that the last few entries don't have it. Here's another quality of life request. Being able to pull up mission briefings on the fly. Now, you do have to admit, though, the map screen is dope. The map screen is dope. It's pretty good. And I understand why they didn't include that, just because the missions are super short, but with my attention span, sometimes (laughs) I forget. And sometimes I get lost in the dungeon, uh, dungeon, the maps. I'm like, what the fuck am I looking for again? Like the capsule mission, for example. Mm -hmm. Not to bag on this game too much, but the map design leaves much to be desired for some of the missions. Every mission in the first Armored Core can be completed in five minutes or less, with maybe the exception of the final few missions. Even then, I mean, the second time around, you could probably beat it in five minutes. However, the game tries to, and I'll say trick with quotes around it, but trick you by including some maps with labyrinthian designs, which can be frustrating. I mean, you're not playing Etrian Odyssey here, but there seems to be no rhyme or reason to the, I guess, just all the twists and turns that are featured in these maps. And furthermore, a lot of the maps are packed to the gills with enemies that are meant to drain your ammo, which coupled with the confusing maps forces you to tediously replay them until you make it to the end. And really tediously restarting the game like manually pressing off on the playstation and then on on the playstation because you don't want to be needlessly penalized uh, by losing money at the end of a mission i want i have two comments about this part one of those is that sometimes i i think labyrinthine design can be a feature but you want to use it intentionally for example, the uh, stop gas exposure, the poison gas mission that corrodes your mech as you try to plant five bombs. That mission, <laughs> I think, very much yeah. is intentionally labyrinthine, as it should be. However, I do think there is a series of missions that take place in a reused level, which is uh, which is like 
uh, kind of board it up at certain points in order to corral you into wherever you know the relevant part of the level is but like the other parts of the level are still there and sometimes you can still kind of stumble into them and get lost that sort of level reuse is fascinating to me as a speedrunner who can go out of bounds and then check out what the other parts of the level are doing in these versions of the level mm-hmm. but it's definitely easy for a new player to get lost in yeah and to be fair like i'm gonna put all my chips on the table so to speak I do like labyrinthian design, just not in front, uh, like armored core. Like for example, I am an SMT devotee, and uh, I like Strange Journey quite a deal. And the final dungeon in Strange Journey is called—I just sent PMC a screenshot. Eridanus, and it is just a fucking mess of teleporters. And it, it would—if PMC ever got to this point in this game, he would just like burn his house down. But. Um, so I just wanted to say that, like, by comparison to like something like Eridanus in Strange Journey, the designs in the first Armored Core are very tame. But there's something just very frustrating about getting lost in one of like 20 <laughs> corridors. Which- or the um, the other one that's really like I think just designed to be frustrating for being stuck in corridors is when is when the dude pays you in advance and lures you underground and then tries to lock the door. It's <laughs> yeah. such a funny mission. Yeah. Also, this might be a hot take, but don't penalize the player for using ammo. I get the commitment to realism, and I don't mind being docked for damaging my mech or even for collateral damage during the mission, but don't punish me for simply playing the game. So this might be one of those things, and I think I mentioned this, but, and and again, this is another example of a mechanic that I think could be better surfaced somehow, which is that you only pay... For shell ammo. True. You don't pay for energy ammo. Yeah. So, you know, that's why a lot of times when you read guides, it'll say use energy ammo early on to, you know, to uh, avoid hemorrhaging cash. So the thing for me, first off, is that like you would want a player to be aware of the choice. Yeah. So it doesn't just feel like, as you say, you're being punished for playing the game. And then also, and this is something that you could only really (laughs) know by like doing the science, but is the let's say there's a dp i would assume that there is a dps advantage to using physical ammo i mean the other thing too is that physical ammo does not use up any portion of your energy gauge so that's i know at least that is part of the trade-off that by using physical ammo you're paying cash but that leaves you more juice on your juice bar to uh, fly around (laughs) hold on this isn't great podcasting but i you know the you know the uh, the meme with walter white uh, yeah. cooking up meth that's you pmc playing armored core <laughs> i i agree like i i see where you're coming from there maybe my hot take is don't limit my ammo in the map maybe the- well that's the, i mean that's the other thing honestly is that i feel like i would want energy ammo or be more generous, I, I guess. I would want energy ammo to take more energy gauge, but for there to be more shots. Because that's the th- confusing thing about energy ammo is that it is just as limited as shell ammo. Why? <laughs> I know, and, and some of the maps just with like 30 enemies that are meant to distract you. I don't mm. know. That doesn't feel like good design to me. I know some Armored Corp listeners are... Armored Core fans might be listening, like pulling out their hair. Like, man, that's this is ingrained into the formula. This is what makes Armored Core Armored now, Core. I will say this is this is a conversation I will save for more length in maybe in Project Phantasma. But 
a lot of those missions where you have distracting enemies, you do get cash for killing those enemies. True. And I like that a lot more. I also like the missions where you have to like try to not to destroy civilian cars. Mm-hmm. I like objectives like that because it makes the missions more dynamic. Yeah, the the uh I know you you already mentioned the parking garage mission when you were talking about don't destroy the civilian vehicles, but the one that I think is really well set up, it's a super short encounter, but the uh protect the tanker in the highway. Yeah. That's just like uh, that's just a great vibe. Yeah. And um oh, I just had a thought but it escaped me. Goodbye thought. Oh, here it is. I was thinking like, all right, so if I stick with Armored Core, I might become one of those stick-in-the-mud Armored Core players who will then defend this formula because, for example, I'll go to bat for tank controls in the Resident Evil games mm, sure. because I get accessibility options and I and more power to companies like Capcom for going back to their older catalog and giving, more, giving players more accessibility options. Like in the recent remasters for the Resident Evil remake that came out on the GameCube, including a more modern control scheme. However, I think that does kind of break the game, um, for better or for worse. So I could I could see where Armored Core fans are coming from when they defend this control scheme, or I guess some of these design choices too. Yeah, I think you know I I've already at least implied this that the the control scheme creates friction because it's it's a you're about it's about engaging with the machine. That's really what you're doing. You're yeah. not, you know, controlling a human being. You're controlling a machine, and it is a specific take on it. And it's a take that I think people like more than the um, the Mech Warrior Iron Soldier take, where you can like, where it's almost like a car that you like rev up the throttle to and it moves forward, and you can like ease on the brake and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And those control schemes have a place, and I think they can be very interesting. But Armored Core is in that middle middle spot. It's between those things. Yeah. And I will say it does produce less friction than some more egregious examples of tank controls in some pretty obtuse survival horror games from the same era. Even though Armored Core was released after the launch of Sony's dual analog controller, not the DualShock, the dual analog controller, which came out in April of 97, it doesn't support it. And again, like I mentioned before, I'm sure some people really go to the hilt defending its control scheme, but as someone who visited the franchise for the first time in 2022, it definitely took some getting used to. I'm trying to think if the sticks even get used in Armored Core 2 and 3, and I, I, I think <laughs> this is going to be funny. I think the I think <laughs> the stick clicks, the L3 and R3 get used, but I don't actually know if the sticks do anything. That's wild. So... <laughs> L3 and R3 work, but not the sticks themselves. Yeah, because R3 the is how you overboost. Huh. But I don't remember. You might be able to just do like D-pad inputs like okay. with the left stick. I really don't think the right stick does anything. That's wild. <laughs> Man. From software, developers are definitely traditionalists in some regard. Notably, Armored Core takes advantage of the underused link cable which allows players to connect two PlayStation consoles for compatible multiplayer games. Even though it launched with the PlayStation in 95, not many games supported it. Looking over the list, there are a few heavy hitters. Ridge Racer Type 4, Wipeout, Twisted Metal 3, and both Bushido Blades. Now, personally, I didn't know this existed until I put together these notes, though I probably could have guessed a peripheral like this did exist if you, like, put a like, gun to my head or something and asked me, did a link cable exist? I probably would have said yes, but I never actually encountered it in the wild. 
PMC, did you own a link cable? I never owned a link cable. I knew about it because I had a, uh, the, the guy who really was my mentor in getting into video games. Mm. He was a big enthusiast for <laughs> stupid hardware. And so <laughs> he, he definitely like introduced me to like Final Fantasy seven, Bushido blade. And I know on the subject of Bushido blade was where I learned about the link cable. I think that guy, the peak of that guy's video game fandom was September 9th, 1999, the Dreamcast for Dreamcast controllers and Final Fantasy, all the launch games, (laughs) you know, I, so he's definitely, you know, C man, the the microphone. (laughs) So he had all the stuff. Uh, Actually, I wonder if he got a, I don't know, but nine, nine, 99, baby. Yeah. Nine, 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 nine. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see the appeal with something like Bushido blade. Um, for a lot of reasons. Oh, and you get like this like wireframe viewpoint. Oh, really? Yeah. If you can find footage of it, it's it's wonderful to look at. Are link cables cheap to come by now? It's like GameCube uh, component cables. I have not looked. I would ass- I would assume if they are high in price, it is because manufacturing for them stopped relatively quickly because they mm-hmm. were never popular. Because you know, just to be clear, you need two consoles, two copies of the game. Two TVs. TVs in the 90s are not flat screens. <laughs> so you need a lot of stuff uh, in order to do that. Just looked it up. Pretty cheap. You get it like, okay. in a, like a box, like a beat up box, but a box nonetheless, like 40 bucks. Oh, all right. Especially with a box. That's that's something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I've got I've got two P. I got a, a, an X Station PS1 and I got a, a Sio PS1. I wonder uh, if it works. On, do you think it works on the PS2? Probably not. I know you would need to, you need to, so the, the cable there and, and I'm pointing to my co is that the, the picture that he provided in our notes uses the, uh, the serial port of the PlayStation one. Okay. I, a, I wouldn't expect it to work period, but B I'm pretty sure there's just no serial port on the PS2. That would be that size. Does the P S O N E have it? I don't think so. Did you ever own one of those like dope ass white PlayStation? I, I not. I did. I got it from a Kmart of all places. Ooh, rest in peace. There's two of them left now. Three. I thought the third one, the one, or did it just? Didn't one of them just close in New Jersey? Yeah, I saw the headlines, but I could have sworn they said three remaining. After. Okay, three remaining. Even then, okay, because I wasn't sure. Because I know I definitely saw one, and then I thought after that. Um, let me tell you, the vibes must be off the charts <laughs> for like a nearly <laughs> the, dead Kmart in 2022. My my favorite favorite anime movie, end of Kmart. <laughs> That's a FromSoft <laughs> game. That's a FromSoft <laughs> environment. Just a Kmart. I love dead-ass malls. That's why I like FromSoft games. I actually found an IGN news article from E3 1997 announcing Armored Core's link cable c- compatibility, like they're announcing God. a new system. I love this. This sentence is so good. Armored Core from Sony, the first title to seriously rival Sega's virtual on, will support the neglected link cable. There's a lot of, just a lot of words going on This is 90s-ass games journalism. (laughs) I like the little headline they have for it. Armored Core, Sony's Mech Fighter. Excuse me. I don't know why I put an accent on that. (laughs) Sony's Mech Fighter is now an essential Mech Fighter. I don't even know what that means. What is an essential Mech Fighter? Well, it says that this is an absolutely essential way to play this game. So I want to be clear, too. I mentioned that with Bushido Blade, the way that you would play the game would be in first person through the wireframe mode, mm-hmm. uh, through the wireframe of your character that you're playing as in Bushido Blade. Okay. In Armored Core Link Cable mode, I have not watched footage of this. I have only read about this. My understanding is that you play it first person. 
Interesting. I believe there is a, uh, th- I, now this might be one of those things where I'm repeating like an internet rumor I read 20 years ago, but I'm pretty sure that you can do some kind of menu cheat to activate first person mode in armored core. I am frantically search scuttling over to GameFAQs to check this right now. That would be neat. I do believe you can do it though. First person while playing. Oh yeah, it's really easy. For, while playing, press triangle plus square plus start. And so it just activates first person mode while playing. So, but yeah, that mode is for the link cable. That first person. Oh, cool. Mode. Yeah, check that out. Interestingly, unlike modern from games, there's a backdoor, and I'll put quotes around this easy mode built into the armored core called quote human plus in the lore human plus refers to individuals who have received biological enhancements to augment physical strength and mental acuity it was developed by morikumo millennium using technology from before the great destruction and the player can get these upgrades too unsurprisingly the game does not telegraph this information it only kicks in once you get $50,000 in debt. Once that happens, and actually this is quite jarring, a cutscene plays and then the game restarts. So I thought I did something bad, which I guess I kind of did, getting $50,000 in debt. But upon redoing the first mission, you realize that now your radar is much more robust. And you could repeat this process eight times to get even more enhancements. And I'm proud to say that I did restart eight times. I, did, I, I shotgun this in like, 15 minutes so it's not that difficult you get into a nice rhythm while you're doing it but here are just a few of the upgrades that you get missile and elevation indicators added to the radar i'll just list them all off for you increase in ac turning speed increase in ac movement speed energy capacity is increased energy drained from boosters is reduced shoulder cannon weapons can be fired while moving or airborne and fire energy wave when using an energy blade so, like I said before, I had some trouble with Armored Core initially. So, I once I knew Human Plus was a thing, I jumped on it. PMC, did you ever make use of Human Plus? Or did you, as the kids say, get good? Steven, when I was a child, <laughs> I had a different kind of uh, cybernetic enhancement. And that was the doctor, the good doctor, <laughs> Game Shark, uh, oh. who, who helped me out as a kid when playing these games. I'm pretty sure I Game Sharked the ever-loving shit out of a lot of <laughs> early Armored Core games. And, you know, from, from money, health, etc. That information is, you know, long ago. I'm pretty sure I did. Since coming back to it, I have never used Human Plus. Once you know the speedrunning stuff, yeah. it makes things pretty trivial. Yeah, once you get a good handle on how the maps are laid out, too, it's super easy to get through them. So, at this point, I... I I'm curious to, I would almost be curious to do it just to know what the difference is, to like feel what it means to say that movement speed is increased or turning speed is increased. Like, I feel like I should do it much in the same, because that was why I 100%ed the game for this podcast where I was like, you know, I, I have beaten this a lot, but I've never done these other, there were missions I just had never played. In what, the game. what was your favorite quote unquote new mission? uh assault urban center okay yeah i i thought that mission would be a drag and it was actually really fun uh also lamal valkyrie you got found on (laughs) oh man i i i had it was a game of hide and seek once the valkyrie uh (laughs) was unleashing on me speaking of human plus before we move on there is a dearth of supplemental armored core content which probably speaks to the niche status of the series but there is a manga 
called Tower City Blade that focuses more on the human plus augmentations. We'll talk more about the side story maybe on a future pod, but I thought to mention it. Actually, fun fact, there's really only one armored core manga, and it's really not that long either. There is a scanlation out of it out there too. It makes sense because it's like a one-shot basically. Right. yeah. Now, of course, the conceit of Armored Core is that you are a mercenary, or as the game likes to say, you're a raven, picking up jobs from various corporations. Your hub screen, where you can select new missions, upgrade your core, and check email, is a Windows 95-esque operating system. It's not the internet from Front Mission 3. Few things are, even the real-ass internet. But even so, I found it super charming. And, you know, speaking of where you collect your missions, I just almost asked you the same question, PMC, but I'm asking again. What missions stand out as memorable? And do you have a favorite overall? So I think the, uh, I mean, I've already talked about two. Uh, obviously, the final mission is incredible. Yeah. The Recover Capsules mission is outstanding. I think if I were to highlight maybe one more in terms of like timing and aftermath in terms of kind of integrating all the factors of the game, it's a mission that's terrible for speedrunning, which is Guard Freight Train. Oh. Uh, but it's really interesting because you go in there and you have to guard this train that's making a pit stop. Initially, you have to fight planes, which is, I think is why yeah. why Steven is, is sighing. Uh, and then partway through it, uh, an enemy armored core shows up. And I think at this point in the game, you really haven't fought enemy armored cores. Again, armored core one does not have an arena. That is a feature first introduced in Phantasma. So, so single player AC versus AC combat is still at that point in the game a novel idea. You're like 10 missions into the game. And this guy Sledgehammer shows up. Uh, you fight him, defeat him. The train pulls away. You get an email afterwards that's like, "Oh yeah, that guy showed up. That was weird. Like, <laughs> you know, he kind of went off the radar for a bit. We don't really know what what his deal was. Don't worry, forget about it. You know, just <laughs> and you get a lot of those emails that uh, that are kind of that are that are very much like that. Or I mean, the other emails that are good, and I forget the missions they're tied to. But like when you're helping one corporation fight the other, you'll get an email from the corporation you help that's like, you know, those guys have gone too far this time, but we're <laughs> the ones who are going to make everything right. <laughs> yeah, they never reassure you. The text never reassures no. you. Um, I, I did sigh because the the uh, the little planes in the beginning. I will say, though, you know, I got used to the combat by the end. There is a mission. It's not my favorite mission. I'm going to talk about that in just a second where you're on a blimp maybe or like some sort of aircraft and that's one of the ones i never played before really yeah. i like that one <laughs> okay I, I like the vibes but it's super easy to also like accidentally blast off to the edge of the map yeah and fall to your death which is frustrating but again these missions can be played in about like three minutes so it's very easy to replay so mine is is a is a mission that unlocks roughly halfway through the game called destroy plus escapee that really st stuck with me um, so you're tasked with eliminating an ex-Raven who underwent human plus augmentation and has escaped from Murakumo's lab. Even though this rogue pilot has been running amok through a city, you know, destroying infrastructure and endangering people, there's no fanfare to his demise. Really, there's sympathy for his demise. There's a fatalism to his death that resonated with me. But you mentioned like quiet scenes and this whole mission is very quiet. And his final words before you kill him are, I'm not going to do the whole bit, um, but it's basically Raven watch out you too and you know his words like force you to confront your own complicity with these corporations like this game is very thematically on point it shows how institutions manipulate and abuse of individuals and considering that the game ends with the destruction of the raven's nest i think there's some connective tissue there it also 
forces you to think like, what the fuck are these corporations up to? Because, you know, at this point, you know that they're up to no good, especially if you're a left-leaning video game player. But even still, like, man, these corporations are fucking evil. This is nominally related to the mission that we're discussing. And I think I know because we had discussed the subject of the Karasawa rifle. How much did you engage with hidden parts in this game? There is a hidden part in this mission in Destroy Plus Escapee. I realized that this morning when I was writing up this part of the notes, I did not do that. Okay. How many hidden like pieces of equipment are scattered throughout the game? I want to say there's about a dozen. Uh, I think the answer is about a dozen. A it's lot of them. A lot of them aren't. Like, there's really only a few that are essential. The Karasawa, as we already mentioned, is pretty much essential. The in that mission, Destroy Plus Escapee. There is a one of the best generators in the game, which is pretty, pretty good. Yeah, looking at it, I'm seeing about about a dozen. So, uh, but yeah, and of course, the only other thing to really mention here, and since since we have we have clearly stated our ambition to cover other from software mecha games on this podcast. Again, if we're podcasting for 20 years, every mecha game. What's the Gary Oldman one? Everything. <laughs> Everyone. Uh <laughs> It, it would be it would be bad on us not to mention that of course that essential from soft weapon is a hidden part in this game and Stephen that weapon is I just blanked the moonlight sword oh that's right sorry <laughs> hold on I, I gotta so in the mission destroy struggle leader there is a Kingsfield oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. ass tunnel with a collapsible floor. And if you fall through the floor and fall and fall and fall and fall and keep falling, there is a bottom to this chasm. And at the bottom, there is an altar. And at that altar is the Moonlight Energy Sword. Makes an appearance in a lot of From games, but also like Elden Ring too, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an Elden Ring. I, I, I did confirm that. Very cool. It is, it is the one constant. Because I know it's in Kingsfield. It's in Armored Core. Uh, and it's been in the Souls games. So... Some of the variations are, are very like, um, what's the energy sword? Is it just the energy sword from Halo? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. They, they remind me very much of that design. No, it's it's a very sick design. Speaking of legacy and from software, did they inadvertently lay out their release schedule for the next decade with this game? Because we talked about a bunch of corporations. Well, not a bunch. There's a few, like a handful of corporations in this post-apocalyptic world. Two in particular are locked in a struggle for dominance, and they are the Murakumo Millennium and Chrome. Interestingly, FromSoft released a game for the original Xbox in 2002 called Murakumo Renegade Mech Pursuit, and then they released Chrome Hounds in 2006 for the Xbox 360. I know this particular timeline that started in Armored Core 1 ends with the Armored Core 2 series before From did the reset, but the connection can't be completely arbitrary, even if it's just a call-out. Yeah, it certainly references, for sure. Murakumo is supposed to be pretty shitty, right? That is my understanding. I have I have not played it myself. I think I watched a little bit of footage. It's sort of... Um, honestly, it's sort of Omega Boost Panzer Dragoon-esque in cool. terms of how it plays, from my uh, understanding. Copies are also very fun. cheap, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chrome Hounds, allegedly, is like a religious experience if you were on the ground floor when that game came out. People speak so highly of it. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, because I think in that era, you had started getting some, especially with the rise of 360 Xbox Live, which was like really polished in a way that 
OG Xbox Live had only been hinting at. Uh, it, by all accounts, everything I've read seems very cool. The tutorial camp because Chromebounds has a single player campaign that is essentially a tutorial for the multiplayer mode. I have played that. Mm. How is long it, is it? It's uh, oh, you can do it in about five six hours. Are the Chromehound servers still running? No, at least not official ones. No, I mean like fan made ones. I don't think so. I feel like I would like to think I would have seen that if All I right. had, if I had uh, when searching for because you know when even before I had thought about the idea that I would ever like podcast Chromehounds, I was looking at it as I often do as a potential speed game, which means I just search information about it. And a lot of the information I had found was, you know, like some glitched builds that were um, some glitched builds that were, you know, using parts that you could only get from playing online. And I feel like I would have found, you know, like something, oh yeah, like we still, we banned this or something, you know, something like that would have come up in the results. But my understanding is that no one's been able to, to redo that. But honestly, Having also played Armored Core 4 and seeing what the patching situation is with Armored Core 4, can save that for a future pod, but it seems like Sega really, really withdrew from their relationship with FromSoft yeah. after Chrome Hounds and Armored Core 4. Yeah, I wonder if they're on... What the relationship like is now in 2022. Not that they like cross paths often. But yeah, like I said, if we ever get to Chrome Hounds, we got to find someone who like extensively played the multiplayer and have them on the podcast. There was a great article way back early on in Waypoint's existence, but I remember this distinctly when they first, like the company, I guess the, the website was first created and there's like a lot of money in their coffers so they could pay a lot of freelancers. They published a, an article by James Swinbanks called Remembering From Software's Forgotten Mech Classic Chrome Hounds. I recommend you check the article out because it's good stuff. But likewise, the writer is very enthusiastic about talking about the multiplayer. Speaking of multiplayer, I would be remiss not to at least mention the multiplayer in Armored Core, because at the time, critics and fans were all about it. Adam Douglas, don't know who he is, but he reviewed Armored Core for IGN back in the 90s, and he called it the real meat of the game. And just, But despite the praise, you know, I just played in 2022, who the hell am I going to play Armored Core with? My 14-month-old daughter? My wife's certainly not going to play it. You know, so I could I could see from like a distance the appeal of the multiplayer in Armored Core, especially if I was like 13 years old when this game came out. And I guess in 1997 I was nine. So like, if you sat me down with Armored Core, you know, early teens, and just like gave me a summer to play Armored Core with me and my friends, I'd be customizing the shit out of those mechs and you know going over to each other's house and play them. But as it stands, as a 33 year old, <laughs> it didn't appeal to me that much. Yeah, as I mentioned before, the most Armored Core multiplayer I had played was on the demo. For me, all that Armored Core that I played as a kid was a very solitary experience. That was not... Those games were never games that I really shared my experience with with anyone else, mm. uh, which is which is interesting. It's kind of almost appropriate. As I mentioned before, my, my theme of my take on Armored Core is that it is uh, sort of a... A, a Pat Labor 2-esque mm. technology is inserting itself yeah. between you and other people.
So we're coming up at the end of our podcast, but we're not quite done yet because I have an AC speedrunner expert here, PMC, who's going to you know talk a bit about his history speedrunning the first Armored Core and also the history writ large of Armored Core speedrunning. Yeah, so I wanted to get into this. I think it's really interesting that Armored Core, Armored Core, you know, has had fans for a long time. Obviously, it had enough of a fandom to merit many releases and many releases being localized in in North America. I think every every Armored Core game, except maybe some mobile spinoffs, made it to yeah. When you think about it, that's wild. That's wild, right? You know, even deep into the into the PS2 era, even I think actually. The PS2 release of the PSP game didn't make it. What's that called again? Formula Front. I got to pick that up before the store closes. So that's, you know, but otherwise it's been around. And I think what's interesting is that Armored Core speedrunning has never really like taken off from for, for an English language speedrunner. I think there are more Japanese language runners uh, of course, there's a language barrier there. It's harder harder to communicate with them. However, every time I've had any interaction with them, they've been super nice. Uh, in particular, the person who's really helped me find a lot of resources is a runner, Needle. Uh, Needle is someone, uh, if you're a, you enjoy watching GDQ events, you might have seen him. He recently did Blast Core in, I think it was this past AGDQ, I want to say, uh, he's obviously done armored core games. He's done so other he's things. Mecha focused. Yeah, he's got an interest in mecha stuff. I mean, he does some other other things as well. I mean, sometimes I just see him play Minecraft, you know. So, uh, but he's thanks to him, I found a number of things, and I just want to mention those resources as kind of the focus of my speedrunning notes here to give you a sense of kind of how difficult it is to surface the inner workings of a game that really isn't making any effort <laughs> to surface them to you. One of those things is the mission structure of the game. I, I linked a chart for the mission structure, and I know I've showed this to Steven before. It's very helpful. But it lays out that the game is actually segmented into about 36 units of time. And for any given moment in the timeline, you can have missions that are possibly available based on whether or not you've done them before and based on whether you've allied yourself with Chromo or Akumo. Mm-hmm. And, you know... And so, like, when you're... Because the game allows you to quit a mission and advance the timeline, sometimes, some missions you just die if you fail. <laughs> but a lot of the missions you can just quit and, and move on, possibly try the same mission again, or have to do another mission. Uh, it creates all sorts of interesting effects that just aren't obvious because the game never tells you. It never gives you a clock. It never gives you a calendar, uh, anything like that. The speedrunning consequences of this are, for example, if you are playing a category where you can't skip missions, you are incentivized to create a moment in the timeline where there are no missions that can be selected, which automatically advances the timeline. Interesting. Uh, you know, and alternatively, if you're playing a category where you can skip missions, then, of course, you want to have as many skippable missions as possible and then also select missions that give you cash advances. So when you quit them, you have the cash advance or... In the case of Destroy Plus Escapee, you start the mission, mm-hmm. grab the goods, and then just quit. Let, let the Plus Escapee live his life. Nice. So, you know, I, it creates some in, interesting decisions when it comes to the high-level macro routing of the game. And this is something, playing the game, again, not obvious. I couldn't have figured it out from when I played the game. And when you see this chart laid out, you're like, oh, okay, like now I get it. But it's, without the chart, 
it's I think it's impossible to explain, which is why I'm not even really going to. I mentioned the timeline and that's it. I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm not gonna go further further into it. Uh, I was actually the person I think who first tried to make an English language version of this because the original chart, and I included the original version of the chart, uh, which is the the second link there, uh, for 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 Steven to see. And of course, you know, it's all in Japanese. I looked at it. The, the machine translation titles, are, of course, do not map to the localized. <laughs> they do not uh, titles. But I I went in. I made a version of it that had the English localized mission names. The other resource that is like really, really, really of interest is a website that documents glitches for the first several generations this website is so old that it uses html frames oh i love this which which makes it difficult to interface with because google translate will not will not like um hook into the frames it only wants to hook into the surface level website these are from software vibes right here yeah this website, I'm looking at. website I'll, I'll make sure to link these in the show notes if you want to see uh but if you go through, it has really like, if you remember what the internet was like before YouTube, when you wanted video, you had to download the video get, and then get play real player out. And it would be like a super tiny compressed video because no one had fast internet and you didn't want to upload the video or store the video or any of those things. This website has a bunch of those tiny video files showing off various things in the Armored Core games. Um, but it's a primary resource for finding glitches, using glitches. There are lots of things that are just aren't usable. There are things that are only applicable to multiplayer shenanigans, like different, like sort of glitching builds, stuff like that. A uh, very interesting website. If you just want to poke around and be like, oh, wow, you can do this in this arena level in, you know, wherever. Um, very interesting. When was the last time this website was updated? Is it 2005? I think so. Oh, wow. Yeah, I believe so. It's it's called like the 2005 report. Like, yeah, when, when you click through on it. So it's very, I, I don't know what it's, again, I don't know where this came from. This is, this is, you know, the, the, the language barrier adds in <laughs> this, this again, very armored core like level of obfuscation <laughs> where I'm searching through the Raven's nest for relevant data. Uh, as a matter of like history, the one thing, the one person I do want to shout out was uh, there's a veteran speedrunner that people may have seen named Peaches. Peaches, I think, was was most known for speedrunning Blast Core years ago. Uh, he's done a ton of other stuff. He's been to GDQ a bunch of times. Like he speedran Catechumen, the Christian first person shooter. Wait, what? <laughs> Catechumen? Hold on. It's it's like the most expensive. Well, actually, it was the most expensive Christian video game until its sequel came out yes so anyway the wikipedia article goes catahuman is a roman themed first person shooter video game never thought those words would be ever like written down in a sentence peaches is the person who he, so when it came to the armored core any percent route i mentioned before that if you don't have any restriction about aborting missions that is, of course, a way to advance the timeline faster. And so what was interesting looking at English language speedrunners and their attempts at speedrunning Armored Core is that it frankly seemed like all of them were afraid or reticent to push skipping missions to its logical conclusion, which mm. is, of course, to skip every mission that you can. Yeah. Uh, when I talked to Peaches during my... Uh, he was like the fifth overboost guest... 
And when I talked to him about it, he mentioned pretty much the same thing. He was like, yeah, I skipped a bunch and maybe I could skip more, but it just didn't seem right. My route, so I'm the current Armored Core 1 any percent world record holder. I didn't really create my route. The route I got came from a Japanese wiki that has Armored Core RTA times. A lot of times in Japanese speedrunning communities, they just abbreviate speedrun to RTA as a shorthand for it, which makes sense. I mean, that's typically what most communities time using anyway. Do you know what that means? I do not. RTA is real-time attack. It okay. refers to purely real-time. There is no removing loads. Mm. You're not using the games timer. You know, lots of games, Resident Evil, Pokemon, will have in-game timers. Yeah. But those in-game timers pause for all sorts of things. You don't know how it works. Also, games. some games have bad in-game timers. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace will sometimes tell you that you played the game for 20 hours when you did not. Oh, I love that, though. So, in this case, this leaderboard, there was a runner who had done a run on PSTV, Vita TV, they always call it in, in Japanese circles. How well, Real quick, sidebar, how robust is speedrunning in Japan? Like, how alive are those communities? I think they're very alive. And Do they uh, like speedrunning the same games like Americans or people in the West like speedrunning? Sometimes. So like there is some Mario. there is some overlap. Obviously there's way more Dragon Quest speedrunning <laughs> in <laughs> in Japan. I can say that pretty safely. Uh there are the most interesting differences are some of the uh rule rule flavors. Japanese runners have always been accepting of turbo controllers. Interesting. In a way that some North American runners still chafe against. The other big difference is that because I think console speedrunning was more predominant as opposed to like Quake, again, is formative in North American speedrunning. I don't think that was the case in Japan. Yeah. And so they are a huge, they were some runners. It was a custom to time from console power on to credits ending. <laughs> Which, like, if you're playing Final Fantasy, yeah. that's adding, like, just a half hour for Yeah, no I'm just thinking of the Final Fantasy VIII ending with just the, the video, the camcorder footage. Right. So that that never caught on elsewhere. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if they've a lot of communities have stopped doing that in Japan. But that's an example of just kind of the, the regional variation that you would have gotten with that community. Real quick, are they as obsessed with Super Metroid as people in the West are? I think so. Really? Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, I will say, if you're interested in what Japanese speedrunners are up to, the premier Japanese speedrunning event is RTA in Japan. When's that? Uh, I forget when it is, uh, but it comes up you know once a year, and I think they're I think they recently moved back to in person events. So interesting. Um, that's the biggest one. I will also say that one time at an RTA in Japan event, someone did a speedrun of PlayStation One. Gundam, the War for Earth. Oh, with the chins. With the chins. That's how you get into GDQ. That's, oh, yes, exactly. That's exactly it. But I think that's about it. You know, as I mentioned, uh, I wanted to shout out Peaches and Needle. Uh, they're really the ones who got me into speedrunning AC1 and Project Phantasma in particular. All these resources I mentioned, I don't know who I don't know who makes these things. If you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I, I uploaded the the Kiwami uh, report on <laughs> armored core glitches. Just say hi. Like I, this is definitely one of those podcasts. You know, I think you can tell Steven put a ton of work into, I'm bringing my own already existing personal knowledge into it, but like 
you know, if you're more resource out there, I certainly would love to know about them, whether that just be production notes or knowledge of the game. Yeah, like if you listen to this and like have some good resources to put point either one of us to, please do. Because we also have an upcoming addition, like additional podcast, I guess like complimentary. An expansion pack. Yeah, expansion pack say. Yeah. to this podcast. Part two coming out roughly a month and a half. Before we get to like upcoming plans with Simulator, I definitely wanted to shout out SGDQ because potentially PMC will hopefully one day get Armored Core into a major speedrunning event. That's the hope. That's the goal. That's the goal. Uh, I certainly hope so. I know, I think the most prominence Armored Core has gotten was I did Project Phantasma at the, one of the Corona Relief events for ESA that was online in the spring of 2020. Uh, You know, shout outs to them. Was that from software themed? No, I did last year do Armored Core Project Phantasma for a sub block which was celebrating the 35th anniversary of FromSoft in uh, what's called Moonlight Sword Warriors. Mm. So I, was, I think it was going back to 86. So it was 35 years. And it was a bunch of FromSoft games. It was a block within some online Japanese marathon. Okay. Everything was in Japanese text. So I couldn't tell you anything about it. But it was fun. They were very nice. You know what? I would love to get a handle on the Japanese, like, the Japanese fan base for FromSoft games, because I know it's it's wildly different than the yeah, could, U.S. Yeah, fan only base. Imagine, yeah. I'm also curious how much like Elden Ring sold there. But yeah, that brings us really to the end of the episode. Oh, I just thought of a good tweet idea. You remember before Animal Crossing was announced, the newest Animal Crossing, there was a bunch of tweets like before like a major E3 event, like a pentagram of like amiibos trying to summon forth the new Armored Core game. We should do the same, or no, for a new Animal Crossing game. We should do the same thing for Armored Core to get you into sgdq mm-hmm. i don't know if we have we have like three armored core games between us uh i have a copy it's really all of your copies i don't know why yeah, I, no, myself I, I have physical copies of four in another age we could add to that yeah that gives we need us a lot five. more though yeah we i guess if we take more. the instruction manuals out <laughs> that, that would be complete though we'd be cursing ourselves and i got i got a physical copy of chrome hounds that's basically yeah we could will both your participation in a major speed running event and a new armored core and a new armored core but yeah that brings us to the end of this simulator episode we hope you enjoyed it this again these episodes are kind of like the bedrock of the Patreon, so definitely let us know if you enjoyed it, and definitely make sure to shout it out as much as you can on social media to get as many potential eyes and ears on the podcast as possible. To give you some idea of, so when we envisioned this, because again, this takes an enormous amount of time to prep these episodes, we envisioned it one episode like this dropping roughly every three months at minimum. However, I have more time during the summer, we already got a head start with the Armored Core history. Hopefully, we'll be releasing a few more over the next few months. Ideally, so we are releasing this at the end of April 2021, 2022, excuse me. Um, hopefully, within the next month and a half, we'll have the sequel to this episode, part two out, covering Project Phantasma and Master of Arena. And ideally, over the summer, we want to cover Titanfall 2 in all its glory, over the summer, since I have more time since I'm not teaching, I definitely want to do games that require more research. So, for example, if we ever cover Xenogears, which probably would be like a four-hour history long, like four hours long worth of content, um, that would have to happen over the summer. Equally, Titanfall 2, there's a lot to talk about with the development of that game. Um, so that will probably, hopefully, occur during the summer. And then we record, would record a follow-up covering our takes about the game. Hopefully both those will release over the summer if time cooperates. And again, after that, this year, we'd like to cover Front Mission. That would be another two-parter as well. 
and then maybe like a smaller game before the end of the year. I'm thinking Rise from the Ashes, maybe. Ooh. Yeah. That would be a fun one. Or Kalik, those three games. Dog, if you want to play Kalik, you can put that, you can bear that cross if you want. I'm not going to make you do it. It's, <laughs> is it that tough? Like, is that, is that, is that janky to play or is that like off putting? I think, I think Epidemic and Brahma Force are fine. They're really perfectly playable. I think the first Kalik is, it will demand you to be patient in a way that is jarring. Okay. Because I wasn't like, always patient for Armored Core. I'll, I mean, I'll I'll do it. You know, <laughs> like I did it. I would do it. If I played Cleek again at this point, I'd probably have to do a speed run of it. Because you know how much I'm like how much of a completionist I am for like covering the chronology of a series. Like I would love to start from the beginning, cover all the from software mecha games over the next like thirty years mm-hmm. and then covering all the Genki games, which there's a surprising amount oh, of yeah. Genki mecha games. Yeah, the, I mean the two the two Kalik games, Brahma Force, uh, Phantom Crash, SLI. Yeah, yeah. The list goes on. The list goes on. And the great thing about that is there's like no information about them. So putting together a history episode of like three of those games would be very easy. To be honest, I thought originally we talked about scope creep on a recent episode. I thought this episode would be a lot easier to put together, and I just kept finding you know I. I did my due diligence and I just kept finding more and more like tucked away resources, which is, makes this process fun. Yeah. Um, but there's going to be a little less information on Project Phantasma and Master Arena than the first Armored Core. Yeah, I, mean, I guess we'll, we'll have to talk about ASCII Entertainment and Agitech, but yeah. that is for that is for then, of course. But PMC, I mean, we, don't, we don't have to pitch anything. We don't have to promote anything this episode. No, I mean, I'm just, I'm so happy to, to, have, to have done this. You know, at the time we're recording this, we just wrapped up our 10th episode We've got this episode coming out. Obviously, Steven's just giving you the lowdown on our, our future plans for Simulator. Uh, and I'm just, I'm glad to be here. And hopefully, as a listener, uh, you're enjoying this that, we're, that we've done as a part of the Patreon. You're enjoying the main feed. And I'm just, you know, happy to have you aboard, really. Yeah. It's, uh, this, is, this has been a delightful podcasting project. And I'm looking forward to more. And with that, we'll see you later, Ravens. Until we try to kill. Uh, the mail's here.